you from high atop our studios in the San Francisco Bay Area, you're listening to Tech Move. This is episode 43. In today's show, we talk about Tech Move's presence at Cinegear 2018, where we will be having plenty of great interviews from companies like QNAP, Red Rock Micro, Artemis Prime, and Aperture. Keith and I also discussed the new MacBook Pros, eGPUs, and GH5 news. I'm Rod Louie. Along with me is Keith Moreau. Get ready. Time for another fantastic episode of Tech Move. Let's go! Well, we have a special edition here on Tech Move, Rod, Louie, and Keith Moreau. And Keith was able uh, to uh, take a little field trip uh, down to Cinegear, the Cinegear Expo 2018, which I believe uh, was happening around May 31st till about June the 3rd. Uh, Keith, that was in L.A., is that right? Yep. It's in actually Hollywood. It's in Paramount Studios now. Um, it actually has been for several years, although somebody... I was, we were waiting in line with somebody and actually used to be at like Universal Studios or some other studio um, that they even like better than this one. But we, we love it uh, being at Paramount. Uh, it's really fun being in the sets and see, you know, there's actually stuff going on, too. There were there were there were shows being shot and things that we could I guess if we wanted to, we could sneak in those areas past the guards and and do do things. But, yeah, so it's always fun being in that in that environment and doing the tech move. Uh, show specials for Cinegear. And uh, Cinegear is, again, uh, kind of like a smaller scaled size NAB, but kind of really for folks really in the industry, correct? Yeah, it's really for Hollywood. It's very Hollywood-centric. So you'll find um, a lot more, the the per capita, you know, like like 10 out of 10 people will be in the movie business there. Most likely, or oh, nice. or something related to Hollywood, right? You know, maybe TV shows or or movies, and um, so and it's very catering to them. There's a lot more, you know, cranes and professional gear and 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 you know, big support systems. Not a lot of, not necessarily like a ton of DSLR um, equipment, but there is there's a there's a smattering of lots of things, um, and that's what I kind of like about it too, because you get to rub shoulders with some major you know, major players. Um, one of the things I went to, and besides just doing the interviews, I always like to go to a couple of their special events and, uh, they have these, they have, have presentations and seminars and theaters there. There's two or three fairly large theaters. And we went to one that was a lineup of all these, um, major, um, cinematographers, you know, like they're like a list cinematographers, which is amazing. So you oh, get, wow. they get, yeah. And this one was about two hours. And they're doing and, seminars type of thing, like kind of speaking engagement yeah. type of thing. Um, it's, this one is pretty casual. It's just, but they're just sitting down and they essentially just get, they, they get asked questions from the audience and then one by one, they answer the question. Oh, nice. What, so, kind, of, what, what kind of questions do they lay out though? Do, do they ask them like tech move questions or do they ask them like Rod Louie questions? Like what's your favorite color and what'd you have for breakfast? Um, <laughs> um, somewhere in between, I think, 
I think the uh, the technical question part part of it maybe kind of died out a few years ago, because now everything's digital and everybody knows what to do. And st- you know, it's not film versus digital anymore. It's just digital, and then the oddballs are using film. And, and you know, <laughs> exactly. And and, um, and failing miserably at doing it too. So <laughs> yeah, if yeah, and going over budget or whatever. Right, right. But um, yeah, so that question, and actually, that was the last. That was the the host. Um, uh, said, I'm really glad that uh, nobody asked that question. <laughs> Do you prefer film or digital? It's <laughs> the first year. He says, this is the first year in like 10 years that that question has not been asked. Well, that's great. So wow. but the audience was asking questions like, I mean, like more, um, you know, story related questions. How do you, how do you go in and deal with a director? Like what's your, what's really your job? And most of them said, it's really just to realize the director's vision. You know, and and if they're really the kind of director that has their own visual style, you want to just make sure you know what it is. If they're more open and want you to want you to include your visual style, then you then do that, of course. But don't you know? Don't impose your vision on their vision. That doesn't that doesn't usually work. Ah. Um, and other one was how do you deal with people that are difficult? You know, other people in your crew that are a pain, or other departments that are a pain. And most of them pretty much just said, just keep your mouth shut. Don't ever complain about other people. Don't ever do it because it'll just come back and bite you. Yeah, and it's probably such a small community. You'll get blackballed in no time, and you'll never work again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there might be ways to do it, but I mean, I think that happens in any industry. Oh yeah. You usually don't want to be complaining about your coworkers. Exactly. Yeah, stuff like that. So it was actually really good, Um, and they're all really nice people. the The uh, cinematographer for Black Panther was there. She's she's it's a woman. She's actually the first woman that was nominated for uh, for, for an Academy Award this oh, cool. year. Um, she actually got no, her name is Rachel um, Morrison, I think. Let me see. Yeah, Rachel Morrison. So she's she's a really great cinematographer. Um, she actually was was um, nominated for what an Academy Award for uh, best cinematography, Mudbound. Hmm. Um, even though she did Black Panther like a little bit after that, she did this other one, I think for Netflix or um, Amazon or something that was, I think it's nominated. Netflix. I think I've, I think yeah. I've seen that title on Netflix. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So, which is really amazing. Cause she, she, she was, there were two women on the stage and then the rest. Oh, like, that's the really other, great. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And the other 10 were, were men, all, all great guys. A lot of them are older, you know, they're maybe like 60 and older and, but very, probably very experienced. Oh yeah, extremely yeah. experienced. But yeah. they've got—they're at the stage where they don't even need to know about the technical stuff. They just oh, one of the things which is kind of tech movish in a way was uh, the DIT. The DIT has a position that's just like essential now. Um, what What's does DIT? What does that? What does that mean? What is DIT? I'm gonna um, look up the definition so I don't make a mistake. Okay. Um, it is. Um, the digital imaging technician. Ooh, okay. okay. Yeah, it's a position. And actually, it's like an established Hollywood position now. Um, and I've kind of been that in it for a couple directors, you know? Yes. Uh, so even though I didn't know exactly what it stood for. <laughs> no, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no. It's basically it's basically the person that um, that manages the technical aspects of capturing the data Mm-hmm. Like on onto your cards, and also make sure that that the cinematographers um, preserve the data successfully, that it's backed up 
correctly onto whatever medium that's that's specified by the project. And then also, uh, in addition to that, they will produce LUTs. They'll make sure that they work with the cameras and the monitors so that the whoever wants to see it, kind of the look, can just see it right away and make sure that that, that LUT carries through to the color correction process, the timing process, they call it, um, that kind of final thing. Because what happens a lot of times is if you don't have that established um, in, while you're shooting, like if you're just shooting like whatever look, you know, very wide, wide range look that happens to work, might work well for anything later along the line, then the cinematographer, and this is something they, they really thought was important, they want to preserve their vision. They don't want it to be all altered by the end of the post-production process. Right. So they make sure that their LUTs are like exactly what happens at the end and that can, they can be referred to. And so the DIT is kind of responsible for producing those LUTs, making sure the cinematographer and everybody's happy with it, and then making sure that um, people can see that on set. That That is very uh, techie. Yeah, it's pretty techie. That, it's that, pretty techie and it's an essential neat. position. Yeah, it's kind of like, I guess in the past... I don't know what would be the equivalent with film, but maybe the person that made sure that the film stock was the right film stock. Yeah, because that that, that wouldn't even be your DP, would it? That that's that's not no. even your DP. I mean, no. your your DP is essentially in charge of like getting that look that the director wants, right? And capturing yes. the the act. Well, setting up the scene and all this kind of stuff. What we're talking about is like, hey, w w you know, there's no film. It's not being laid on film. You better get it on a good hard drive and <laughs> yes and and make sure it doesn't crap out on on us yeah. like like it does for tech move uh uh productions uh and all this kind of thing yeah and it's it's really interesting because almost every single person like every every single dp on that that um lineup just said that dit is such an important position nowadays and they and they they go out of the way to make sure they have the people that they want like you can just get a dit off the street and they would work work well with you Wow. It has to be a really special person that knows their stuff and also works really well with the other creative yeah. people. So yeah, so that's kind of kind of a tech move thing. Ah, that's neat. Anyway. That's yeah. neat. Yeah. Well, anyway, so that's how it was, and then and then you know we went around and tried to find stuff that was interesting, different, not stuff that we'd done before in other shows, and so that's that's what our set of interviews. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, we do have a, uh, a few interviews that we'd like to share with uh, our folks in Tech Move land. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to set things up and uh, and kind of let them roll. And uh, and then we'll come back and talk about each segment once we uh, once we hear it. How's that sound? Awesome. All right. Awesome. Okay, okay, so let's do this. Let's uh, take a break. We're going to reset and get these uh, get these interviews uh, on the reel, and uh, we will let them roll. So uh, we're going to come right back with Cinegear 2018 right here on Tech Move. Welcome back to Tech Move, and this is our special edition of Cinegear 2018. It is Rod Louie and Keith Moreau here, and uh, we have our first interview that we'd like to present to you guys. And uh, this is a really interesting uh, one. Keith, I, I feel that this is kind of like the tech of Tech Move that, uh, that we kind of like. 
Uh, and this is with a, uh, a great company called QNAP. That's Q-N-A-P. And uh, this is kind of like a really hardware uh, discussion that we're going to have, wouldn't you say? It's pretty much hard drives. It's about hard drives. Yeah, hard drives, <laughs> uh, network attached storage, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, all, all this stuff. And specifically, kind of for the videographer in mind, wouldn't you say? I would say so. I would say so. It's for the videographer that doesn't want to spend like a ton of money uh, or, or wants to limit the, 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 the amount of money they want to spend and get something that's pretty reliable. Something that's going to perform with 4K or 8K and maybe even have multiple users on this uh, using the same drive at the same time. Yeah, you got to listen to this, folks. This yeah. is a this is a really uh, great interview. It is uh, with the gentleman there. Uh, his name is Bob Zellin, and he is good enough to spend some time with uh, Keith and uh, kind of discuss the QNAP uh, history and what it does. Uh, I guarantee you, folks, you're going to really like this one. So, uh, Keith, let's get to it, and then we'll come back and talk about it uh, a little bit later. Is that okay? Okay, awesome. All right, let's do this. Here is Bob Zelnick. Uh, he's representing QNAP along with our very own Keith Moreau right here for Cinegear 2018 and Tech Move. This is Keith Moreau with Tech Move. And we're here with Bob Zellin of QNAP, and Bob is going to tell us a little bit about his products. Okay. Hi, I'm Bob Zellin, representing QNAP. QNAP makes very inexpensive network-attached storage systems that are extremely fast. One of the unique things about their products is that unlike a direct-attached storage product where you can just use it with one computer, you can plug multiple computers into a QNAP so that everybody can share. So if you have multiple people who are working on editing and graphics and audio, everybody can plug into the QNAP, whether that's through Thunderbolt or through 10 gig Ethernet or standard 1 gig Ethernet, and everybody can share the same media at the same time. The QNAP systems are very fast, so with today's modern media where you're dealing with not only HD video, but with 4K, 6K, and 8K media, many of the models of QNAP are fast enough to be able to handle the 4K, 6K, and 8K media. Uh, although you can use a Thunderbolt connection directly from a Macintosh in order to be able to mount the, uh, the QNAP drive onto the Macintosh, my favorite way of working is with 10 gig Ethernet because you can purchase inexpensive adapters from companies like Sonnet and Promise that make Thunderbolt to 10 gig adapters and be able to do 1,000 megabytes per second bandwidth from your Macintosh to the QNAP just over a piece of inexpensive CAT6 cable. One of the new products that QNAP has come out with recently is a very inexpensive 10 gig switch. So if you have more than just two users, let's say you had six or seven people that needed to connect to the QNAP all at once, for about under $600, you can now have everybody plug into that 10 gig switch and all of these users can all plug into the 10 gig switch from their network ports and they, through one of the ports on the 10 gig switch, which would connect to the QNAP. Now all of those people could be doing 4K editing all at the same time. That's great. Okay, so I, I'm somewhat familiar with this industry, um, but I haven't really heard QNAP that much in the past. So how, how old is the company? How did it start, etc.? Well, I actually have only been associated with QNAP since about mid-2015. I used to think that QNAP products weren't very good. There's many other companies who make network-attached storage products, companies like Drobo, and they're always very, very slow. And I would always think of, when I thought of QNAP, I thought of Drobo. They make these very, very slow products. But about mid-2015, 
uh, QNAP decided that they were going to start introducing 10 gig ports standard on most of their products and Thunderbolt ports. This was at the time Thunderbolt 2 products. And all of a sudden, you had this enormous bandwidth available, which you could never have gotten on a product like a Drobo, and that's only because they only have a one gig ethernet connection. With a one gig ethernet connection, you're only going to wind up getting about 100 megabytes per second, which is fine for doing regular HD editing, but is not sufficient for doing 4K and 6K editing. Once you add a 10 gig port onto the computer, now everything is fast enough. So if you have the combination of enough drives, and I typically recommend an eight drive system as a minimum, if you're going to do doing multiple people who are doing 4K editing, so you would wind up getting a QNAP system with eight drives and having the 10 gig ports available to you, now your system is fast enough. So that's what made the product unique. And so once they were willing to start doing that, that's when I realized that the products would be acceptable for doing professional video editing. And there's lots of other companies that make network attached storage systems, and they all work very, very nicely. But QNAP has been orienting their products towards the professional video editing industry. They pay attention to products like Final Cut Pro 10 and Adobe Premiere. They actually address specific issues with them. We recently found a product for Avid Media Composer that makes the QNAP work with Avid Media Composer. It's called uh, Indie Store Mimic. If you load that onto your computer, it fools. Uh, the AVID system to thinking that it's connected to an AVID ISIS, which is kind of amazing. So the very fact that they're orienting the product towards the video business, that they're addressing these very fast network requirements that are required to go from a Macintosh or Windows PC to the network attached storage system, that's what makes QNAP unique. And of course, what's always amazing about the QNAP products is that they're very, very inexpensive. Although there's a wide price range for these products, a typical price for a QNAP shared storage system, not including drives, is about $3,000. Which if you were to compare to a product that's more established on the market, it would be $30,000. All of a sudden, when you hear $3,000, literally 10 times less money, it makes you pay attention and say, maybe I should check this product out. So that's exactly what happened with me. I said, these products are so inexpensive, let me just see if they actually work. And of course, they do work very nicely. Um, do you want to run through the, the lineup from the least expensive to the, to the most expensive? Sure. Well, QNAP makes an entire series of products. They make generic network-attached storage systems. So there are people who just want to be able to have something for their files or their photographs at home, or they have um, something which they want to be able to play their music files. So they'll have small one- and two-bay systems. I don't really pay attention to those systems because they're not oriented towards the professional video business. I'm only looking at the products that are oriented towards the professional video business. So they've recently come out with a model called the TVS-873E. Uh, the TVS-873E, and that model is about $1,300, and that's about the least expensive model that you can use. It has eight slots for drives, and if you're doing, doing professional video, video editing for at least two users or more, that would be the least expensive model that I would wind up adding. You would have to add a 10 gig card into that model. It's about $100 for that card, and now you can have multiple people connect to that system. Um, if you have a larger budget, you would wind up going with the, uh, um, what is that? I'm trying to think of all the model numbers. There's a lot of model numbers. The TVS 1282T3, which is right behind me over here, TVS 1282T3 is also an 8-bay, but it has much faster performance. It has two 10-gig ports built in native. It also has four Thunderbolt 3 ports built in. So that box empty, the street price is around $2,800, then you would have to add the eight drives onto the system. So that would give you much greater performance. If you don't care about the Thunderbolt 3 ports, a larger product 
would be the TS1685, which is also about $2,800 street price. It has the built-in 10 gig ports, but no Thunderbolt 3 ports. And the reason why that's a great value is because it has 12 drive slots instead of eight drive slots. So you basically can have 50% more storage for the exact same money. So it's a very, very good value to be able to get basically 100 terabytes of usable storage for $3,000, not including the price of the drives, is quite an amazing value. And then once you go up from there, they have the more industrial products that I've installed for companies like Disney and Universal, and that's the TVS EC1680 series, and those are the rack-mounted units, which uh, look more like familiar conventional service systems. And those systems can be expanded with eight additional expanders on them, so you can have over a petabyte of storage available to you. What's the expansion technology? The expansion technology varies from product to product. On a product like this, which is the uh, TVS uh, 1282T3, you would expand via the Thunderbolt cable to a Thunderbolt expander. And a typical expander, like this particular product, uses a model called the QNAP TX800P, and that street price is around eight $850. So it's very inexpensive. For the TVS 1685, which is the 12 bay that doesn't have any Thunderbolt ports, the expanded chassis for that is called the REXP 1000 Pro, and that's $1,100. That uses 12 gig mini SAS in order to do the expansion, and you can have four expanders on the uh, TS 1685. For the more industrial systems that are rack mounted, like the TVS EC1680U, that also uses 12 gig mini SAS, and there you can have eight expanded chassis on that system. Okay. Yeah, I, I actually, I'm a editor, filmmaker, etc., so I'm somewhat familiar with this. I currently have a SAS system. That's how I've done my expansion and my high-speed buses. But I recently got, uh, I had a, an old uh, MacBook, uh, a Mac Pro, the cheese grater, mm -hmm. and I put some um, Addo cards in there with the, the mini SAS in there, outputs, and I'm kind of using that now. But then recently I upgraded to the, to the new iMac Pro which has Thunderbolt 3, so I'm right. very interested in this. Right. The iMac Pro is a wonderful product. The iMac Pro is a Thunderbolt 3 computer, but it has a native 10 gig port built into it. So you would take the 10 gig port, you could plug that on a small system, you could plug that directly into one of the 10 gig ports on one of these QNAP products and immediately be getting 900 to 1,000 megabytes per second. But if you had multiple people who needed to be able to use it, not just one or two guys, but you had, let's say, six or seven guys, you could wind up going into a switch. And there are many companies that make inexpensive 10 gig switches. QNAP recently released the model, which I mentioned before. Uh, it's the uh, QSW1208, and that's about $600. It's a little bit less than $600 street price, and you would plug the 10 gig port uh, from the QNAP into that switch, and now you can have multiple iMac Pros, for example, plug in there. But one of the things which I love about some of the new Sonnet products is that if you were to just simply buy a Thunderbolt 3 iMac, and because you didn't want to spend the money for an iMac Pro, Sonnet has got this wonderful Sonnet Solo 10G, which is a Thunderbolt to 10, 10 gig adapter. I think the street price is $177, and that can go into the switch, and you'll be getting 1,000 megabytes per second. There's another wonderful thing, which is unrelated to QNAP, uh, that Sonnet is manufacturing for the new iMacs. Um, it's called the EGFX box, so you can take the same card that's in the iMac Pro, it's called the Vegas 64 from AMD, and you can put that in the box. I think Sonnet's selling that as a package now for the Vegas 64 card with the EGFX box. You plug in the Thunderbolt 3 cable and that whole package is $1,300. So if you wind up buying the two Sonnet products on an iMac, you'd wind up having basically the iMac Pro for a lot less money. I think I actually have one of those expansion 
chassis that you mentioned. Oh, they're wonderful. And if you're doing rendering, like if you're doing Cinema 4D or Adobe After Effects, it's just amazing to have, you know, the GPU uh, acceleration. Does uh, does uh, Resolve also use that? What's that? Does uh, does Resolve also use that? You know, I know that Resolve uses an NVIDIA. Uh, uh, GTX 1080 Ti. I'm not sure if they're using the Vega 64, so I just don't know the answer to that question. But a lot of my clients are switching to Resolve, so I better start learning the answer to that question. So in my situation, I will occasionally have other editors, but most of the time I'm doing editing myself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I kind of like the Thunderbolt 3 aspect. You mentioned Drobo's. Actually, we shouldn't got a Drobo uh, 3D, mm -hmm. uh, which is the Thunderbolt 3 version of the Drobo. And it's, it's not super fast, but it's, it's okay. Um, I'm assuming this is going to be way faster than that. You'll be getting on a Thunderbolt connection 8 to 900 megabytes per second. And uh, as per the RED website, it's red.com red slash tools slash recording time. So if you go to that site, you'll see what the bandwidth requirements are for 8K full frame from a RED Monstro, which is 163 megabytes per second. So if you're able to do 800 megabytes per second, with a direct connection to a QNAP, that's certainly more than enough to be working with 8K media with no issue whatsoever. Um, and then with the 10 gig uh, Ethernet, we're also getting similar speeds? You're getting about a thousand, with, with like this uh, Sonnet Solo 10G, you'll be getting a thousand megabytes per second read time. You'll get very, very fast performance. So even faster than Thunderbolt 3? Even faster than Thunderbolt 3, yes. So then I might be better off using my on my iMac Pro, I might be better off using my 10 gig Ethernet connection for editing. Oh, absolutely. I would be using that in a hub. If you had a QNAP product, I would, I would urge you to take the iMac Pro native 10 gig port, you enable jumbo frames, uh, you click on system preferences, uh, advanced hardware, and you, you change it from automatic to manual, and you select uh, an MTU speed of 9,000, which is considered jumbo frames. You do the same on the QNAP, you go into the network control panel, and you select jumbo frames for the IP that port that you're connecting to on the iMac Pro, and you'll be getting 1,000 megabytes per second. The performance is spectacular. And then what do I do about Ethernet connections? Can I split it out or use a hub or something like that? Well, the, QNAP, uh, the QNAP has six ports. Uh, you know, the mid-sized models, which are around the $2,800 price point, have six uh, ports built in. So there's four 1 gig Ethernet ports, which again are limited to 100 megabytes per second, and there are two 10 gig ports. So each one of those can be doing 1,000 megabytes per second. But if you were to say, no, no, that's not acceptable, I want to be able to have four or five guys all plugging into this QNAP, what do I do? You must purchase a 10 gig switch. That's how you would get multiple editors. Let's say you had five iMac Pros, you would get a switch, everybody would plug the 10 gig ports into the switch, into a 10 gig switch, and then you would plug the 10 gig switch into the QNAP 10 gig port, now everybody could have fast bandwidth. Okay, for my situation, say I took my 10 gig output and brought it into the QNAP, mm -hmm. but I also want to have Ethernet on my, on my computer. I want to be able to access the internet and do other stuff related to Ethernet. You end up getting an Apple uh, Thunderbolt 3 do gigabit adapters. Actually, specifically, um, Apple recently purchased Belkin. So it's the Belkin USB-C to Ethernet adapter. That's how you would get a, one, a native one gig port. But there are countless companies. You know, There are only a certain number of ports on an iMac Pro or even a Thunderbolt 3 iMac. So typically, you know, I'm recommending that people wind up buying another world computing Thunderbolt 3 dock or a Promise Thunderbolt 3 dock or a, getting a Sonnet Thunderbolt 3 dock. And I just saw today in the Akidia booth, which is right around the corner from us, they're releasing, it should be available in about a month, a brand new Thunderbolt 3 dock, which has a native 10 gig port on it. So if you, in fact, had 
um, just a regular iMac, and you wanted to have all the dock functions for all those other ports that Apple doesn't give you, but you also wanted the 10 gig port, you could get that from a Kitio now. But if you were to do this right now, the least expensive way to do it is to spend $29 and to get one of those Belkin USB-C to Ethernet adapters, and now that's your house internet connection, and then you would use a native port on the um, iMac Pro in order to connect to the QNet. Excellent. Okay, what about um, RAID, ver RAID uh, variations, RAID 5, RAID 6, etc.? The, the QNAPs will do um, RAID 0, RAID 1, RAID 10, RAID 5, RAID 6, and now in the larger models they'll do RAID 50 and RAID 60. So typically, as a quick explanation, the most popular options are RAID 5, which allows for one drive to fail uh, before you lose all your data, and then RAID 6, which allows two drives to fail before you lose all your data. And I've been in situations where I've only used to do RAID 5, because that's kind of you know the background that a lot of people have, but what happens is as the drives age uh, at a similar rate, you'll wind up having a RAID 5 system where one drive fails, you plop the dead drive, you put the replacement in, the rebuild process starts, and then in the middle of the night as this is rebuilding, a second drive fails and then you lose all your data. So these days I try and emphasize to people to always wind up doing a RAID 6 because this way you've got that extra protection that even though you're losing the equivalent of the two drives of space, you still wind up having the double protection. But now with the drives being so large, if you think back on the one of the boxes that I mentioned before, which is the TS1685 that's a 12 drive system, if you load that up with 10 terabyte drives, so that would be 120 terabytes, because 12 times 10 is 120 terabytes, so you have 120 terabytes of storage. If you create a RAID 6, you would lose the equivalent of two of those 10 terabyte drives, so 120 terabytes becomes 100 terabytes. 100 terabytes in a small box is an enormous amount of storage, plus you've got RAID 6 protection. But when you mount that on the desktop of the Macintosh, you are seeing 100 terabytes of usable storage that you can use. It's a good way to go. I always recommend RAID 6 for my customers. How do you recommend backing up the system? Well, QNAP has a wonderful built-in feature called hybrid backup sync. And so a lot of people talk about backing up. There's many ways of backing up a system where you could buy a single drive dock and just wind up backing up to a single drive. Of course, you can't back up 100 terabytes to a single drive. Some people wind up buying LTOs, but LTOs are expensive. And the fantasy of LTO, in my opinion these days, particularly because of the recent release of LTO 8, is that LTO, you know, people say that LTO is good for 30 years, but if you buy an LTO 8 drive and you have an LTO 5 or an LTO 6 system, you say, well, it's supposed to last for 30 years. I've got an LTO 5 and I have to be able to use that. An LTO 5 or an LTO 6 tape will not play back in an LTO 8 tape drive. So to me, it's kind of a fantasy and you're spending $6,000 for these products. For that kind of money, you can buy a second QNAP and you can have backing up from one QNAP to another QNAP. So what I recommend to a lot of people is to spend the money to buy the second QNAP system. So you're spending similar money to what you'd spend for an LTO, but now you've got a second system and they have software in here called Hybrid Backup Sync, which will allow you to back up from QNAP number one to QNAP number two. And some people say, well, that's not really safe because if the building burns down or there's a flood, then I'm now going to lose my backup system in addition to my main system. So because we're dealing with such large amounts of data, 
data, and you can't transfer terabytes, huge terabytes of information across the internet. What I normally recommend in those kinds of situations is that you wind up taking the backup system, you bring it into the facility day one, and you now create a second backup over the 10 gig network, so you can now transfer your 50 or 60 terabytes of data, and it takes about an hour, an hour and a half per terabyte in order to do the transfer. But now you've got your main backup. Now, because you're not going to be adding on five terabytes every time you do a job, or at least not maybe not with uh, with 4K, but with 8K, you may be adding four terabytes on a job. But typically, people will add a couple of hundred gigs, you know, on a typical job. So what you can do is you can take one of these home, and you can now do that same hybrid backup sync process over the internet. And again, you're at the mercy of your internet connection. So if you have to transfer 100 or 200 gigs, that will transfer overnight if you've got a decent internet connection. And um, hybrid backup sync will allow you to remote access the second QNAP over the internet. So it's just a very way, it's basically having your own cloud site. You know, it's a very dramatic uh, example for me is that I had a client of mine in Washington, D.C. that wanted a backup to Backblaze B2, which is a popular backup. I actually use Backblaze. What's that? I actually use Backblaze. When you now tell Backblaze that you want to be able to do an enormous backup, what Backblaze will do is they will send you a Synology network attached storage system. Synology is a, a competitor of QNAP. And so when I realized that that's what they received, and I wound up doing the setup for them, and I'm like, why are we doing this? Why are we going to basically pay Backblaze every month for you know 100 terabytes of backup, and all they're doing is sending you a Synology, which they're going to wind up transferring the data onto their cloud service. I said, you can go out and buy a second QNAP and just put this in your house, and it will become basically the same thing that Backblaze is doing. It's your own personal backup system, which is exactly what they did. So again, day one, we had both systems in-house, and then after that initial backup was done, which took them about two weeks to do the initial backup, now it's sitting in the owner's house, and so if that building ever burns down, the backup system is sitting in his house. And as long as they've got enough bandwidth in order to be able to transfer across the internet, then there's no problem. That's how they create their backup. So basically it becomes your own personal cloud site. This is really amazing information. I'm actually very, very interested in this system because I've been using a bunch of smaller 16 terabyte drives that I've kind of stacked up and I have all these drives mounted and it's a little bit of a hassle. The drives go down occasionally. Um, and I, I recently got some uh, SAS systems, the expansion base. I got a 12-bay, um, I forget the brand, but it's one of the less expensive brands, but it's not bad using the SAS connection. But this looks like a more intelligent solution, uh, maybe a little bit more reliable. Um, now, you mentioned that there's a rack-mounted version, but I don't think you mentioned the price, so what do those go for? The rack-mounted versions are significantly more expensive. The models that I normally recommend, uh, it's the uh, TVS, EC1280U, which is a 12-bay, it's around $5,000. The TVS EC1680U is about $6,500 empty. And then they have a 24-bay version, which is the TVS EC2480U, and that's about $7,800. And again, that's without drives. So you have to be able to fill those up with drives. So those are industrial solutions. Um, I'm the engineering contractor for both Disney and Universal in Orlando, Florida, and I've installed those systems at Disney and Universal, and that's what they wind up using. They have an enormous amount of data, and they've got multiple expansion chassis on those systems, and they're just incredibly reliable. Previous to that, I had uh, Mac-based servers that were in these facilities, but Apple has kind of abandoned the Mac OS server software, so we were forced to go to these solutions, and it's been very, very reliable. Wow, well, <laughs> Honestly, I could be talking 
to to you for a very very long time. I have so many questions because this personally affects me. But I think we have to end the interview. I think we've been going for a while, right? How long have we been going? Twenty three minutes. So, <laughs> so I think we have enough information for now before our brains explode. Um, but thank you so much. You've been really My helpful. Pleasure. Wonderful. <laughs> nice meeting you too. Keith Moreau signing off for Tech Move, Cinegear 2018. That is Bob Zellin from QNAP, or shall we say representing QNAP, and uh, and our very own Keith Moreau right here on our uh, Tech Move continuing coverage of Cinegear 2018. I really like that guy, Bob. Uh, yeah. Keith, he, he's... Uh, uh, I think when I buy all my different QNAP equipment and house it in my studio slash data center, I'm going to have to have Bob come out and consult and have him hook it up for me. What do you think? I think so. I think he, he would, I mean, I'm going to, you know, probably call him and ask him some questions. Yeah. Uh, next time I buy stuff. I, I got a lot of great information about the QNAP product. I kind of knew about the QNAP and that's why I went over there. Um, some other, podcasters and and bloggers and video uh youtube people had talked about qnap in the past that they were really liking it kind of like a drobo alternative um there's a couple other synology alternative i think synology is another one like that's what i have yeah and those are great um they're great but this but this qnap just seems to be a little bit i don't know for some reason it just you know like synology your drobo Seems to be great as far as just like, you know, our data goes, right? Yeah. But this QNAP stuff seems to be like kind of geared towards, you know, 4K, 8K, us as videographers. I think it's built for speed and throughput. Yep. And and the 10 gig. So that this, the key, well, there there's a Thunderbolt connection, which is really cool. Um, and I might even use that. But I, but he, he even told me that the, I think he told me that the 10 gig connection is even faster than the Thunderbolt, which is kind of hard to believe, because um, the Thunderbolt theoretically is faster. But maybe with the way that the protocols and the hardware stuff works, maybe it turns out being faster. But the cool thing is that so you can have a 10 gigabit Ethernet connection, say coming from my iMac Pro, which has a native 10 gig connection, Ethernet connection. Right now I'm just using the one, the one gig. Um, kind of ethernet connection because that's all i have here but i could just <clears throat> use an adapter on, on a thunderbolt uh, connection or usb connection and then get my regular ethernet to the rest of my system systems in the house and then use this 10 gig to go to this qnap and then if somebody else wanted to do editing or add another computer here they could also have a 10 gig ethernet connection going to this QNAP. I know that's what he was talking about, right? And yeah. and have and just having complete throughput, having complete access. Yeah. And, and just as fast if it was like direct. Yeah. And you can even have this QNAP thing, you know, really far away cuz ethernet connections can be really long. So you don't have to have it near your computer. So what if you care about noise or whatever this thing might generate, you can just have it somewhere else. You know, wherever. <clears throat> so and it seems like it's a pretty good deal. Um, for what you get, it's still not, it's still not cheap. No, you know, it's not, it's probably the Drobos are probably a little bit cheaper, but the performance on this is I think way better than Drobos. Um, so I'm, I'm really considering it. I'm actually, you know, I have these pretty old, um, OWC drives that have been awesome and fairly reliable and fast for a while, but they're still kind of slow. 
um, you know, we're talking 250 gig, uh, megabytes per second, which is not slow, but still it's starting to get on the slow side for lots of streams. Right. And <clears throat> so with this QNAP, I could probably just put all my, all those several drives I have and put them on the QNAP and, and everything could be stored in one drive and it would all be in one place, be easier to maintain and have some redundancy. I could put them all in a RAID 6 configuration, which has two redundant drives for the whole thing rather yep. than just one. So both, so two drives could go out and the, the, the data would still be okay, um, which is really cool. And then possibly share it with other people if I, if I wanted to. So it's definitely, you know, I think it's in the future for me. Yeah. No, I, 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 I just the, the, the efficiency of it, the speed, you know, it, it, it sounds like the, the hookups are, are kind of like limitless. sounds like mm -hmm. a really nice product. sounds yeah, like a very nice so. product. And, yeah. uh, so that is uh that's QNAP, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and they're of course located on QNAP.com. And let me give a shout out because I did a little research on Bob Zellin. He's got his own website, and you can reach him at bobzellin.com. The Z E L I N is the last name. Awesome. And uh, looks like he's available to take questions, and it looks pretty friendly to be able to do that. Um, you know, so that's uh he. What a great resource. So anyway, uh, Keith, thank you very much for finding Bob and the You're QNAP welcome. folks. And uh, we're going to take a quick break and come back with our next interview uh, right on the uh, showroom floor or showroom street of uh, Sydney Gear 2018. We'll be right back with more of this on Tech Move. All right, we're back with Sydney Gear 2018, and it is Tech Move, Rod Louie and Keith Moreau. In our next interview, you're kind of getting, ladies and gentlemen, a double dip right here because we're <laughs> we're going to do two interviews in one segment, okay? Because it is with the same company and it is with the same uh, representative, but he's going to be talking about two different products. And what we're talking about is the company Red Rock Micro and uh, their representative, Brian Valen Valente. I think, mm -hmm. uh, Brian Valente. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I butchered your name. That was actually a pretty easy name to pronounce, but I just butchered it anyway. But Yeah, I think he's one of the founders, too. I think so. so. I mm -hmm. think so. And he's going to talk about uh, two products that, Keith, I think you had some interest in. One is called mm -hmm. the Digiboom, mm -hmm. and the other one is called the Movi Commander. Mm -hmm. And uh, give us a little preview of uh, maybe what we're gonna hear. What what drew you to these uh, two particular items? Well, um, mostly what drew me was the Digiboom, and I never Red Rock Micro is just famous. They they've been in the industry forever since the beginning of DSLRs. And in this interview, you hear I think a little bit of history about how they started. I did hear um, that. You're right, yeah, and it, yeah. it is it is very interesting because we. We really go back quite a ways uh, as as far as our timeline goes with uh, with how long they've been in business. Yeah, so they were in business when I was first starting trying to get um, trying to get video cameras to look more like film. Yep, and and they were one of the pioneers. There are a couple other companies that are similar things. Um, so they had some of the first uh, DSLR or not? No, they had some of the first um, regular video camera to cinema or or DSLR lens. Uh, adapters, and so you could make a shallow depth of field look on a regular small chip sensor. It, it, it's funny because, like any company who was 
involved in that kind of stuff back then, that seems to be the only focus that there was, right? Was just yeah. to make a lens get shallow depth of field. That yeah. was pretty much it. You got yeah. that, you were in business for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, and then we, I think we talked off camera, and we'll, we can talk after the interview about what we talked off camera about a little bit, because that was kind of interesting too. But anyway, so so initially, initially though, my just I was attracted to this thing called the Digiboon just because I kind of have made something like the Digiboom myself, like a DIY yeah. <laughs> Digiboom, and they sure. just professionalized it. So uh, obviously a lot of people had the same idea of having a, a gimbal on the end of a pole, right? Right. So that you could do booms and stuff and get really high and do all this professional-looking stuff just with yourself, just with you and your pole and, and a gimbal. So um, so I was kind of intrigued about what they were using, how they did it, you know, they're professionalizing it, and... And so that was kind of cool. And then he had some other stuff there. So I said, you know, let's just do another segment on your other um, movie-related product there. So fantastic. So we just did too. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. Uh -huh. Okay. So let. Uh, so this is a, like I mentioned before, a double dip uh -huh. uh, because we're going to be uh, running two of these. We, we kind of split them up, folks. So you're going to hear just a little, you know, close of one product and then the start of another one. So we're going to uh -huh. talk about the Digiboom and the Movie Commander. And this is with Red Rock Micro and uh, their uh, person on the street, I think co-founder Brian Valente and our very own Keith Moreau on our continuing coverage of Cinegear 2018 on TechMove. Lightsaber noise. Are we recording? <laughs> So we've got Brian here of Red Rock Micro. He's going to be showing us one of his new inventions. Yes, this is uh, Digiboom. It's actually our invention at Red Rock. Um, so Digiboom is a gimbal-stabilized mobile jib, and its purpose is to give uh, anybody, solo operators or small crews, uh, more creative freedom in shooting, uh, especially with really, really low angles or really, really high angles. Uh, but without a lot of overhead that you would have shooting with a jib or a crane or other types of more fancy systems. So it works very simply. It's uh, gimbal stabilized. As you can see as I'm moving it all around, it's keeping the camera uh, steady and it's also keeping it um, from jittering around as I'm, I'm moving it around. I can get it all the way up probably about 8-10 feet here uh, and of course to ground level as well. Uh, the pole itself actually extends and retracts. It goes down to about three feet, uh, and it goes as high as uh, six and a half. And then we actually have extension poles that if you want to build like a pole camera and be 10, 15, 20 per, uh, feet higher or even more, it'll allow you to do that as well. So that's sort of a really nice way to get a lot more creative shots uh, without a lot of overhead. It's very lightweight. It's, uh, it's all carbon fiber. Uh, Digiboom is a great way to add that to any sort of broadcast or field type of shooting where you're doing events, news, sports, uh, churches, weddings, things like that. Um, does this dynamically extend and retract or is there a little bit of setup involved? Uh, it doesn't dynamically extend, but all you do is simply just pull this uh, open, adjust it uh, forwards or backwards, and then just tighten it down and you're good to go again. That's great. So how did you guys think of this? Um, we actually, it's, it's, it's funny you mention that because we were approached by Disney Research who had uh, been working on this for a number of years internally. And uh, as you may know, Disney owns ESPN, 
and they own ABC News, and they were kind of trying to do this for their internal customers, and they took it about as far as they could, which was, which was great, but then when it came to productizing it and kind of really thinking through all of the product features, um, that was something that they wanted to partner with uh, and they found us, and you know we have a history of uh, manufacturing. We make everything here in Texas, uh, in the United States, and uh, we actually specialize in small crew, single operator kinds of things. So it was a great fit, and uh, we recognized the potential to really add a lot of creativity for people who are shooting professionally. Tell me more of the specifics: the the gimbal, the uh, capacity uh, adjustments, software maybe that goes with the gimbal, etc. Sure, so in some ways you can kind of think of this as camera on a stick. Uh, a lot of folks who have DIY'd this type of solution have taken a camera or maybe a handheld gimbal and been able to sort of attach it to, to a pole or something and they're kind of more or less shooting like that. Maybe you've done this kind of thing. But uh, the problem with that is when you're shooting things that you only have uh, you know, one opportunity to shoot or possibly it's live, you really need to be able to see what you're doing and be able to control the gimbal and control the camera. And that's essentially what we've done here. We've kind of created a professional version. So as I'm actually moving the camera up and down, I can actually see what I'm uh, monitoring and recording here. If I need to actually adjust the gimbal, I've got uh, connections down here that allow me to do this. I can move the gimbal around manually, change my shot. And all of the camera controls here, focus, iris, zoom, camera settings, gain, they're all actually at my fingertips. So when we talk about kind of how do we evolve from camera on a stick, this is kind of the place where we want to go. On the back, where's it at? You'll see that we actually this is the brain box. So we have batteries that run the gimbal, the camera, and the monitor. So it's a single point of power. We've got built-in audio, uh, so we can actually use something like a stick mic on a wireless, actually route it into the Digiboom. It will go into the camera for recording or for live broadcast. So we really kind of thought through what it's going to take to make this work in professional broadcast situations, or even if just if you're a serious amateur and you want to you know, kind of have the workflow of a professional, this is really the way to do it. Um, I noticed there's some controls on electronics that do uh, various functions of the camera. Um, does it support certain cameras? So the Digiboom itself uh, supports any camera and lens uh, combination up to six and a half pounds. That's going to give you all of the gimbal capabilities, uh, depending on the camera, uh, some of the camera capabilities. But with a Blackmagic uh, Micro Studio 4K camera that we really like, um, not only is it super, super small and super light, but it actually opens up uh, any camera setting or function that you can do, we can actually now control directly from our hand grips. What type of functions are we talking about with this camera? Like literally anything. We can actually scroll through the menus, change any camera setting we want. It actually all shows up on the monitor here. We've got shortcuts for things like record, start, stop, uh, focus, iris, zoom. Um, gain settings, shutter, things like that. That's awesome. Well, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, obviously, I, I, I was intrigued by this because I did a DIY version of this. Right. Um, I used a GoPro on mine, and I used a uh, painter's pole that went up like 24 feet. <laughs> and you know, that, that's great. It's like we've all tried to do these kinds of shots. We're all trying to get more creative shots, and that it works great to a point, right? And then it's kind of like, well, don't really want the GoPro wide angle or want a little bit more flexibility or I want to shoot live or you know whatever it is and this is kind of that next iteration for as I mentioned really when you're doing events broadcast type stuff uh, it's got to really work it's got to work right the first time and this is just a great way to do that it's really cool well thanks so much Brian um, I actually may have another segment with Brian to talk about his other stuff and I'm not sure but anyway signing off now, Keith Moreau for Tech Move Podcast. Keith Moreau here, Cinegear 2018 for Tech Move. We're here with Brian of Red Rock Micro. We recorded another segment. We're recording a, 
a segment about another product, and Brennan's going to tell us about this now. Yes, so this is a, a brand new product we also introduced at NAB. This is the Movi Commander. Um, so this product is for people who own gimbals, specifically the Movi Pro or the Movi XL. It's probably the most popular and most successful product for handheld gimbals for, uh, you know, uh, serious amateurs, enthusiasts, and professionals who are doing any type of gimbal work. Uh, we have one right over here. It actually has a red camera on it. It's got a big Canon uh, zoom lens. And the challenge with gimbal work, even though they're fantastic and beautiful and do all these wonderful things, is when it comes to lens control, focus iris zoom, you just can't, you can't reach over and touch it. So you need some sort of wireless system to do that. So we've come up with the uh, Movi Commander. It actually works uh, with the Movi Pro's uh, internals. So this is actually a piece that you get with the Movi Pro and it drops right in. It gives me focus control. And you can see over there that it's actually doing that. It gives me iris control. Again, you can see it's doing that over there. And it gives me zoom control. Are we seeing that? All right, we can see that. It's fantastic. Um, in addition to that, we've got camera run stop. So as your uh, second operator, you can actually start and stop recording with the camera. And when we double click this, we can actually uh, go directly into gimbal control so I can actually tilt it and move it around. Uh, so if I need to aim it for some reason, I, I can do that. Now the really cool thing about this is it's incredibly uh, affordable. So right now we have a, a kind of a pre-order special. The Movi Commander is $995. Uh, we make these motors over there. You saw them moving the lenses. These are uh, SLS motors. They're the, basically the best lens motor you can get for a gimbal. They're incredibly strong, incredibly small, incredibly lightweight. We have a full kit of three lens motors, the Movi Commander, and a case for I think about $3850. And it's about $800 off uh, the retail price. And that goes through June 15th, so it's a good time to talk about it now because we have a couple of weeks left until uh, that pre-order expires. But anybody who's shooting Movi, Movi Pro, Movi XL, wants a second operator system, this is a great uh, deal right now for that. Got a, got a question for you. These, um, this SLS, is this something that you you actually manufacture? Yeah, SLS motors are actually our motors. So we've been doing uh, remote focus systems for about seven years now. We started out with the original micro remote system. It was a single channel uh, wireless uh, focus system. It was incredibly popular. And then when gimbal started to come out and people realized you really do need to have somebody actually pulling focus, uh, it became even more popular. So of course the logical extension to that is how do you go from a single channel system to now you want three channels or possibly two channels and the Movi Commander is really the solution for that. Those look really small. Yeah, they're, they're tiny. Well, SLS actually stands for smaller, lighter, and stronger. So it's maybe not the most creative name, but it really tells you what they're all about. And we actually really did design them with the notion that they need to be the lightest weight, the smallest, and without sacrificing any power for them for gimbal types or, or handheld types of applications. And that's, as you've seen, they're really just tiny little things. Those are applicable for other applications, not just this particular system. Yeah, so we're just showing this all on a Movi. We actually have these available standalone, so if you don't want to use it on a Movi Pro type of system, you can use it basically on any camera and lens combination. That's really cool. Well, while we're at it, um, have you been with Red Rock for, since yeah, the beginning? the co-founders. You want to give me a little history of Red Rock Micro? Yeah, so Red Rock has been around, I think, for about 15 years now. Um, we originally started essentially building gear for ourselves because at the time, the notion of independent production uh, and affordability was very different than it is today. It was kind of like you, if you didn't work in the movie studio systems, 
you didn't have access to good product, you didn't have a chance to uh, use things because you had to rent them, and if you're gonna rent something for $800 a day, you want the least amount of time possible. So we felt like ownership was really important and quality was really important. And we were an American manufacturer involved in lots of other industries. And we thought it was really important uh, to be able to uh, create products for independent production, for owner operators that didn't sacrifice quality, uh, but still was affordable. And essentially back in 2000 and I think six or seven, we started our first product, which was the depth of field adapter. It was called it the magic box. Uh, but allow you to take 35 millimeter still lenses and attach them to, at the time, very small chip video cameras, and you got the look and feel, the depth of field, and the focus control of traditional 35 millimeter film. And it really made a huge difference uh, in terms of changing sort of these crappy video looking indie flicks into something that looked legitimate. Uh, and then we kind of rolled into DSLRs. When those started doing video, we recognized early on, like this is gonna be the next thing that's gonna happen for independent production. We're getting very well known, possibly the best known uh, DSLR uh, cage and rig maker. So we did all those things for the 5D Mark II at the time was a big deal, and of course, uh, you know now we have Sony and, and Nikon's and others. So we did that for quite some time, and then uh, as we started to see a lot of these smaller crews still using these systems, but wanting to emulate a lot of the camera moves, a lot of the focusing characteristics of bigger budget systems. The trick, though, is that they couldn't add people to do it, right? They still need to own everything, and they're just trying to figure out how to use technology to leverage that into more creative shots. So one of the first products we came out for that was the one-man crew. It's an automated parabolic slider that essentially gives you a second camera and moves back and forth if you're doing interviews, talking head types of stuff. Normally, you would have somebody like a PA or a second operator using that. Well, we can do it automatically for you. And again, you get this notion of the, the, the creative content and the production value of that without adding all these people, right? So you can do more with the folks you already have. And then from there, we sort of built out looking at uh, remote focus systems, remote lens control systems, uh, things like that. So that's kind of where we are today is really focused on independent production, solo operators, small crews, wanting to do more uh, higher production values uh, with the crew they already have and really focusing on owning the gear that they want. That's pretty cool. So you mentioned that you got into this industry or this uh, company because you were you had projects of your own. You were a DIY guy? Well, I was uh, doing uh, filmmaking on my own. Uh, my partner was doing filmmaking of his own. Uh, but I was involved in professionally in Silicon Valley doing software. He was involved in doing hardware. Uh, and embedded systems, that kind of thing, out in Texas. And we actually came together over this uh, depth of field adapter. We sort of both wanted it to come to life. He'd been working on it for a really long time. I actually just wanted it. Uh, but we started talking, and you know, the idea sort of came that we're going to kind of form this partnership, really just try to get this product out. And we've been doing it uh, ever since for all these years. So you're a filmmaker? Yes. Are you a filmmaker now? I, I don't know if I'm uh, if I qualify as a filmmaker anymore because these are the films I make now, right? I do interviews and talk about our gear, but uh, as much as we can, we're involved in production uh, because that's really where our heart is. We love to be on set. We love to see how people use stuff. We love to see great shots that happen. That's great. Well, you've been really helpful. I love these products. They're really they look really well made, really elegant, and uh, I've heard your name in the industry for forever. Um, oh, I, I I actually. I didn't get your brand, but I got another one of those depth of field adapters back in the day. And uh, oh, that's okay. I, I'm sure yours was great. Yours, yours had excellent reviews. I just decided to do, go with a different brand. But um, I, didn't, I didn't keep it that long. Do you know why? No, tell me. <laughs> because I wound up carrying this gigantic 
system with extra mirrors and lens adapters and things like that, and it, the rig became really big. And then when DSLRs came out with the kind of built-in shallow depth of field, and you, I'm sure you recognize that in your field, those things became a little bit less useful. Yeah, so not many people know this, but the first DSLR that actually shot video wasn't the 5D Mark II, it was the Nikon D90. And we shot a music video that actually is still available on our channel. And we worked with an incredibly talented um, uh, director and uh, director of photography. And it looked beautiful. I mean, it looked incredible. And he really mastered the art of shallow depth of field to make it just really sing. And we shot this thing. And by the way, in the middle of this, the camera overheated like 15 times, right? So we all sat around, put it on ice, waited. But we looked at the result and we absolutely saw like, this is where things are gonna be headed. Like, it's not quite here yet. And then about eight months later, the 5D Mark II, Mark II came out and we said, this is gonna be the camera that's gonna make it happen. And so did you immediately stop production on your adapters? No, because like anything, it takes a while uh, for things like that to actually come around. But the interesting thing, there, there was a couple things that happened that caused uh, DSLRs to really take off. One was obviously the technology, but the other thing that happened at the time, you may recall there was a strike by SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. And uh, there are two unions that actors uh, uh, work for. There's SAG and then there's AFTRA, the American Federation of Radio and Television Actors. And most actors are on both of them. Um, but at the time, the way they differentiated between which contract it was done is that SAG is shot on film, and AFTRA, which is really, it was really for uh, soap operas, was shot on video. So as, this, as this, um, this strike dragged on, a lot of these producers started to see what was capable with the 5D Mark II, and they're like, well, wait a minute, this is a video camera, and I can take the same people, put them under an AFTRA contract, and shoot that. Now suddenly, you started to see this steamroll of this interest, and a lot of producers and directors buying 5D Mark IIs and wanting to kind of gear them up. And we were involved in the house finale uh, with Gail Tattersall. He shot those all in 5D Mark IIs with all of our gear. I remember that. Yeah, and we were involved with uh, Rodney Charters in 24. He shot a ton of stuff uh, with those. And actually, for really good creative reasons, not just as a gimmick. And uh, I think that was really kind of the pinnacle of DSLRs and kind of that introduction into uh, taking over a lot of that. Really interesting history. We could talk for a while, but I think I've taken enough of your time because you're saying hi to all these people around you, getting trying to get your attention. So thanks so much, Brian. Oh, it's been pleasure. really helpful. Thank you for stopping by. Keith Murrow signing off for Tech. <laughs> Keith Murrow signing off for Tech Move. All right, Red Rock Micro and Tech Move combined. Uh, that was uh, our special guest, uh, Brian Valente and uh, Keith Moreau. Keith, mm -hmm. uh, very nice. Uh, I, I really like that Digiboom. You know, that. Uh, did you actually get to handle the Digiboom yeah, yourself? Yeah, I picked it up. Yeah, well, I picked uh, it up a little bit. Uh -huh. give, me, give me a sense of feel for it. Uh, it. It just looked like, you know, it's so long. <laughs> you know what it looked? It reminded me of kind of like a, uh, a gardener's edger. You know, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You know, kind of like that. So, yeah. like, you know, that end is going to be heavy and all this kind of stuff. How hard was it to to balance when if you did get to try it? Um, actually, it's quite manageable. It's really similar to like using a mic boom pole, right? Um, so maybe a little bit heavier than that. But the thing is, you grab it more more toward. You don't grab it at the end. If you grab it at the end, it's really heavy. But if you grab it kind of in the middle, then that weight at the end balances, right? And the weight at the end is the battery pack, 
and controls, I guess, for XLRs and things. But um, so it's actually relatively light, and you're not gonna, you're probably not gonna be holding it like high above your head too long. So it's not gonna, you'd probably hold it low and then boom up. Mm -hmm. So you're not, there's not a lot of weight, you know, that you're really using your arms for. So I think it's actually pretty useful. Like I think, like I think a crew member, um, this guy. Um, Brian was saying that the that they sold a bunch to CNN and a whole bunch of studios and TV shows and things like that 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 just need to get stuff close to the audience members, um, you know, get, get oh, yeah. uh, cameras right. close to audience members or other situations where maybe uh, a person wouldn't fit very easily. You yeah, know, down below something, you know, I don't know, yeah. bullfights, you know, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's actually a pretty cool idea. It's kind of it's really similar to you know what i did myself with um a painter's pole that had a little adapter for a quarter 20 on it and a gimbal and then a gopro in the end yeah done a bunch of stuff with that right and it's kind of similar to that although it's a little more sophisticated um and you could probably get your own diy as sophisticated as what they're doing because all these controls are available um if you run a wire like a like a serial cable or usb cable down from the down from the camera um the camera they really like is the i think it's the 4k cinema camera or 4k micro cinema camera or production camera anyway it's it's a it's a it's a black magic yeah that's um, what i camera. thought i I, yeah. I was i was going to jump in and say that <clears throat> i think they were using a black magic camera yeah yeah and it's kind of perfect for that because the black magic camera is just kind of like a head it doesn't even yep. have a screen on it right and and you have to plug stuff into it to get it to really work and control it. Yeah. So you you plug a, maybe a little Blackmagic monitor, and I think it's designed to interface with the little Blackmagic five-inch monitors. Yeah. And and then you can also record in those little recorder monitors as well. Right. Um, and and then you can also maybe focus and run aperture and all the whatever controls are available on the camera um, through some remotes. So yeah, so it's a pretty good idea. It's not cheap. You know, it's multiple thousands of dollars, so I'm not sure. The market's more probably more, more professional in a way, and it's pretty specific, but still pretty cool. I I, I think it's neat because it's it, you know it's the best of a steady cam, a jib, you know, maybe a drone. Yeah. You know, with, with all this handheld portability that that you're able to get from it. So. Yeah, and you know? if you want to, and if you if you feel like you want a jib, you know, you don't feel like holding it. You can just put, you can just get a mount and just mount it onto a tripod or a light yeah. stand, you know, something yeah. that'll just hold it up. And then you could just work it like a jib yeah. and it works like a jib because it's on a gimbal. So it's going to stay level. And so you kind of got in a way the best of both worlds and it's very portable. It compacts down. You can kind of telescope it down yeah. to a certain smaller length and then pull it out when you need to. So I think it's pretty darn cool. It It, it is neat, but uh, yeah. uh, cer certainly something that, you know, a, a specialized item. Definitely it's pretty specialized. Yeah, definitely yeah. specialized. Let's yeah. move to the uh, Movie Commander. Yes. Um, from what I understand or what I got from it, it's more than just a lens controller. I think it could could, could potentially control uh, anything on the lenses and then as well as remotely control the gimbal. Mm -hmm. You know, turning and panning and stuff like that. Yeah. So you can have somebody holding the gimbal like the operator and then you can also have somebody operating it and focusing and aperture and all that stuff right so yeah but it's specifically it's kind of made for the it's kind of made for the movie it's interfacing with the movies stuff and uh so 
you could you can use some of the some of the things on other gimbals like the the lens controls which are really amazing the little small uh they just mount on the the 15 millimeter rods mm -hmm. and they control the 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 various um gears on a lens mm -hmm. for example the, the aperture or the focus and um and those are really tiny i was surprised how small those little motors are getting and yeah. those are remote controllable yeah so that was really cool um you know the whole thing it's these guys you know make really professional stuff oh yeah doing it for oh, a long ab time absolutely i mean it really yeah. it really looks great really looks like you know uh, you, hey you're paying for it because you know, this movie commander is not cheap either right so no no uh, it's the like a thousand bucks it's like a thousand bucks and even though i think and folks, we we have to apologize because uh, this seems to be a Cinegear special that they were running that he was mentioning, but it's only going to be good till June fifteenth, and we're probably not getting this episode out till any time before no. that time. So, unfortunately, listeners, you're you're not eligible. Yeah, for and you're special. you're used to that with Tech Move anyway, so <laughs> it's all right. But uh, anyway, maybe maybe next year. Yeah, special. maybe next year. Yeah, <laughs> or or you know what? We'll have to tell uh, Brian and and the Red Rock people to, you know, can can you extend your specials for our listeners? Maybe a year, maybe a year at least, or something. Yeah, maybe a year because that's about how long they take to right. get out. The that's episodes. exactly correct. Exactly yeah. correct. Fabulous. So, but I wanted to go over. So uh, after we finished, um, Brian and I talked a little bit more. Ah, yes. Um, and and um, and I honestly have I, I've liked the Med Red Rock Micro stuff, but I've never bought any Red Rock Micro. I may have bought you know, some little, you know, some like like a bracket or something from that, but nothing really extensive. Nothing really expensive, and. Um, but I was talking to him about how, you know, I got into the Philip Bloom thing and, and, uh, and instead of getting their, you know, their lens adapter, I got the lettuce. He said, he, I said, I got another one. He said, Oh, what'd you get? And I said, I got the lettuce. Oh yeah. yeah. Those are like our competitors. And mm. Philip Bloom, we talked to him for a while, but he decided to go with lettuce and, and, um, and I said, yeah, but the thing was, I actually, as soon, as soon, and he said, but you know, we, we soon realized that the kind of the lifespan of these adapters was going to be pretty short after the the 5d came out and even the nikon there's a nikon that also did shallow depth of field before that uh -huh. um that had okay video you know okay not not as good as the 5d probably right and um and i said yeah i i just i noticed that trend too and i just immediately put my lettuce on ebay <laughs> in a, and i think i paid like two some two thousand or maybe over that and i got I got something like fifteen hundred for it. He said, "Oh, you got a really good deal because those are like fifty dollars now." Oh wow! Oh my <laughs> yeah. gosh! Yeah, yeah. So he said, "Yeah, they recognize that as well." Um, it took a little while, and they started going to support gear instead of support gear for the DSLRs instead of um, uh, lens adapters. Wow! So he kind of talked about the evolution, how things can change so quickly. Yeah, it's kind of amazing how one little thing can change an industry. You know. I I, I, I thought that was really a great part of the interview was the little lesson on the, you know, origins of, you know, DSLR, yeah. you know, and creating content and, and how it spawned off all these little companies, which yeah. is awesome. It is awesome. You and know? now it's, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah, everybody uses that stuff now. It's really? amazing. Yeah, terrific. Well, yeah. again, uh, let's give them a plug. Uh, mm -hmm. Redrockmicro.com. Brian Valente uh, was our man uh, about, and uh, thank you very much uh, to Keith for finding him, because I, I, I thought this was really great. So thank mm -hmm. you so thank much you. for that. 
And uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to come right back with more of our uh, coverage of Cinegear 2018 right here on Tech Move. The coverage of Cinegear 2018 continues here on Tech Move. It is Rod Louie and Keith Moreau. Keith has a, another uh, interview uh, with a company called Artemis Prime. Uh, and with a uh, gentleman uh, by the name of Nick Sadler. And uh, this is, uh, y- you know, I'm going to let the, um, well, Keith, I don't know, you, you want to give us a little intro on this, or do you want the interview to kind of speak for itself? Um, just a slight intro. We, Veronica and I were <clears throat> walking around looking for uh, another interesting um, recording interview, and we just saw this 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 guy uh, with an iPad on a pole, kind of like what we had, <laughs> yeah, what we were using to record stuff. Exactly. Yes. And I, I didn't quite know what it was at first because I saw it at a distance, and then after he explained it, uh, he, it made sense. But I thought he was kind of had just a professional version of what we had, you know, not not slapped together, just more like integrated. Right. Um. So that's why I started. I was intrigued by him, and he was kind of res- reticent to interview with us. Um, but we um, convinced him because we told him we were from Brisbane. And uh, he thought it was Brisbane, Australia, and he said no, it's Brisbane, California. <laughs> That's but awesome. that made him laugh, and then, <sighs> and then he decided <laughs> to do the interview. Right. <laughs> uh, that that that's that's good all right well fantastic okay let, let's uh let's give this one a listen it's uh, artemis prime with nick sadler and our very own keith moreau uh right here on tech move artemis prime artemis artemis okay prime artemis prime okay so how are we doing here he's pretty tall so okay Hi, this is Keith Moreau with Tech Move Podcast, Cinegear 2018. I think this might be the last interview of the show. We've got Nick Sadler here from Chemical Wedding, and this is Artemis Prime, and we're going to talk about it. Hi. So this is um, Artemis Prime. It's based upon the um, established viewfinder software called Artemis, which has been around since 2007. Um, We've just re-released Artemis as a software version called Artemis Pro, which has a lot of the features which are available in this device, which is called Artemis Prime. This is a, um, a lens, a PL lens-based viewfinder system. You take your lenses that you're going to be shooting with, you put it on this device, and then on here we have a software interface that allows you to preview exactly what this lens would look like on any motion picture camera. We have 6,500 formats and cameras in here to cover all the major cameras available for the film industry, both film and digital. What this system allows you to do is, as a cinematographer, when you're working with a director, you need to be able to show them specifically what certain lenses will look like given the camera formats you're going to be shooting with. And in the tech scout stage, you don't usually have the cameras available to you. So this is a way of previewing what your lenses will look like when you're in the field. Works with spherical lenses, anamorphic lenses, uh, pretty much anything you want to put on it, which has a PL mount or a PV mount or an LPL mount or a Super 70 mount. Um, Currently, it's being used... Um, on shows from Marvel, shows like Gotham. Um, it's being used by Mandy Walker, who's shooting from Milan, uh, a film called Mulan, which is being, uh, being prepped in China at the moment. So at the moment, it's, um, it's a device that you rent from Panavision or Ari or Otto's or any one of the major rental houses. And there it is, a director's viewfinder system for the 21st century. This is pretty awesome. Tell me, tell me how much it costs and how I can get it. Uh, if you want to buy, you have to call me up. Uh, it's expensive. It's eight and a half thousand uh, dollars, which, in, in in the context of viewfinders, is actually not expensive. Um, a, a general, an optical-only viewfinder, 
particularly an anamorphic one, will cost you around $10,000. This is far more functional, it's got a lot more capability. Uh, $8,500 is um, actually very inexpensive in the, in the great scheme of things. But it's still, it is an $8,500 iPhone accessory, or iPad accessory, I should say. Um, I, I actually noticed Nick because he has a setup that is cosmetically similar to ours, but, uh, but, but uh, his is way more professional. Um, tell, tell us how you came up with this and what your background is. Okay, I'm, I'm a cinematographer. I've been working for, um, for 25 years, shooting around the world. And I've had, over the time I've been working as a cinematographer, I've used a number of different viewfinder systems. Um, when I got to LA in 2005, um, I worked with some friends to make a software version of a viewfinder that I've been using for a while, which is Artemis, um, which has proved to be very successful um, in the film industry. Many cinematographers and directors have Artemis and use it on a regular basis. So this is kind of a, a, um, a, an evolution over time of that software and that idea to create a tool which is um, uh, more flexible for cinematographers and directors to line shots up. Tell us what the difference might be between this uh, version that has the lens and, and the mount versus the software version? The software version is, is almost identical. It just, what it lacks is um, the ability to use the lenses that you'd be using on your shoot, um, which have a specific um, aesthetic quality to them, specifically anamorphic lenses, which have distortions and things that you want to preview before you come to shoot. It will allow you to see those in advance uh, without having to have the camera available. So if I'm on, a, say, a tech scout, um, uh, I will take the lenses that I'll be shooting with me um, and then I'll be able to show the director what the shots will look like with those lenses in the environments that we're going to be filming in. And you could probably make screen caps or captures? We can do screen capture, record video, broadcast video. Um, we can create PDFs which have got all the information that you need to replicate that shot. So GPS coordinates, tilt angle, bearing. Um, you can add notes to it. So it's like a complete note-taking capability as well. Wow, um, and I can get the software on, on the App Store. You go to the App Store, you search for Artemis Pro, and you can download that for 30 bucks. I think I'm going to get that right now. I'm just going to go download, go to the App Store and download this. Um, so what's a little bit more of your background, films you shot on, etc.? Um, I've uh, been working for, as a cinematographer for, um, uh, since the, the, the early 90s. So I've done um, many, many commercials, over 600 TV commercials music videos, concert films, um, I've done six features. So yeah, a bunch of different things. And how long has this product been in, in, in evolution? Um, this, is, this product's been available for about a year now, but it's been in development for the last three years. Wow. So this is all really, really, really interesting. And we actually just happened upon Nick, and he actually was a little reticent to interview with us, but I think once he, once he realizes that he's going to have a vast audience, <laughs> of customers. I want to, it, it is. This is not the kind of tool that um, that you would be wanting to use if you're a one-man band. This is the kind of tool that gets used on medium to high-end productions where you need something which is going to help you plan accurately. When you've got um, people on set who are costing $100,000 a day to be there, you need pre-production tools like this to be able to plan very, very accurately as to what you need to do and how to execute that. So it's um, it's a it's an upper end production tool. That's great. Well, thanks so much for your time, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Keith Moreau signing off for Tech Moves in the year 2018. All right, it's Tech Move, and that was Artemis Prime, the company name, and Nick Sadler. Um, 
as we uh, walk around Cinegear 2018 down in LA and uh <laughs> Keith, uh, you know, Art- Artemis Prime. Uh what'd you think? What well, it looked like, you know, he spent a lot of time getting that thing to look really nice and professional. It did look good. It's really cool. It yeah. did it did look really really nice. It looks like he yeah. he spent a lot of money on like R&D and stuff like that. Yeah, and he says he's actually, you know, sold them to a lot of a lot of directors and cinematographers out there. So, right. that's really cool. Yeah. Um it's probably as he said in the interview and he was kind of reticent even to interview with us, but he said this is not really for a one-man band. This is like for real, you know, production crews doing scouts and Reckies, as they called reconnoiters, so um, yeah. But um, I w- he does offer a software-only version of this that's on the on the App Store, right? Um, not quite sure exactly what it does without the lens, but uh, I looked at it and just didn't have enough reviews to for me to plunk down the thirty bucks. And there's a few other kind of directors viewfinders that are out there that have more more users, so I just decided not to to get it. But I'm really glad that Nick took the time to interview with us and show us his interesting device and and give us a little you know, laugh a little bit about the similarities between our iPad setup and his. <laughs> I, I, I did like uh, his honesty in the sense of talking about it and saying that it really is more of a kind of like a pre-planning tool. Yes. Uh, you know, not really something like maybe the, the setup we're using for tech move. Um, yes. Not necessarily for that, even though I'm sure you could use it. But, you know, at that price point, you're probably going to want to use it on a, you know, big budget production type of thing and, and really plan things out. And I think so. Yeah. And then if you have some PL mount lenses that you want to try out and just get a good view and just, it's a quick way to get a nice snapshot of how that's going to look. And then you can show people. Yeah. This is the way we want it to look. This is the focal length and et cetera, depth of field. You know, yeah. you I guess you could set all that stuff. So anyway, but it was just kind of a chance meeting and we spent five minutes with them and then we were off to the next one. Fabulous. <laughs> Fabulous. All right. Nick Sadler, Artemis Prime, thank you very much for joining us here on Tech Move. Keith, thank you for that one. We'll come back with another interview uh, on the floor of Cinegear 2018. We'll be right back with more on Tech Move. We have reached our final interview for Cinegear 2018 here on Tech Move with Rod Louie and Keith Moreau. I know, Keith, you're sad about that, but, uh, you know, I, I think we've had a lot of uh, great interviews thus far, <laughs> and this one's going to be no different. Let's talk mm-hmm. to uh, the folks over at Aperture, and uh, this is one of our old friends, Neris Nassin, or Nassin, and uh, he's going to talk um, about a new light. Keith, you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I'm, I was a little interested in... Aperture is always coming up with amazing stuff, and they're yeah. growing, and they're, they're going to be a huge company at some point. Um, he says even they've they've grown from just the two of two of them, them, him and Ted, to like five or six more people in their departments. So, um, but uh, one of the things I am intrigued... I, I got the 300D light, and uh, that is a nice light. It's super bright. Uh, you know, it's like 1200 bucks or something like that. Um, I took a while for me to get, I got it and I've used it on a few gigs. It's great. Um, they have a, now they have a smaller version of that. They always had a smaller version of that. That's the one that first came out, but now they're getting a new, ver- they have a new version of a, the smaller version of that called the 120 D Mark two, yep. which I'm probably going to get because having one super bright light is great, but having one super bright light and then one other that's 
almost as bright, but a bit smaller and, and everything's a little more co compact is going to be a great one, two combo. So I was intrigued in, uh, about that light and talking to, to Naris a little bit more about that. Fabulous. Let's, uh, let's give it a listen because he gives a great explanation on it. And uh, so let's listen to Naris from Aperture talk about the new 120D Mark II uh, on Cinegear 2018 special of Tech Move. You can actually start recording. I want to see Naris packing. Hello, can we you hear me? That. Can you hear me? It sound good? That. Yeah. So we're, are we recording? Okay. So we're here at the Aperture booth. Uh, we're here at Cinegear 2018. I'm here at Keith Moreau for Tech Move. Uh, we've got Naris here. We actually interviewed Naris last year here, and he was very helpful in showing us our products. He was so uh, convincing in his um, pitch for the 300D that I actually got one, and I love it. It's super bright. It is a little, it's a little big, but it's it's uh, very very useful when you need a lot of light. I know they've recently come out with a new model of the the smaller version of that. You want to tell us a little bit about that, Neris? Sure. The first thing I will say though is that the next biggest light to the 300D is a 25 pound Molpar. So I know it's a little big compared to this light, but just think of the next comparable light that's in terms of output. Um, anyway, all that said, the 120D Mark II. So the 120D is one of our brightest. Uh, most popular lights. Um, it's a great light. It's really, really modular. It's really effective. Casey Neistat uses it. Peter McKinnon uses it. Everyone uses it. Um, but we had a few. We had a little bit of feedback from it. Um, so we have the 120D Mark II now. The 120D Mark II is an all-in-one power box now. The 120D Mark I had a power box, a second power box unit over there. This is all one power box now. It's aircraft-grade aluminum. It's really, really durable. We now have color-coded cables that are also a lot more durable. You have DMX capabilities. Uh, in addition to all that, you have an upgraded antenna. You can dim all the way down to 1%. So you can have this, this is literally on right now. Um, in addition to all that, it is also 30% brighter than the 120D Mark I. So it, it, it keeps getting brighter and brighter and brighter. It's quite bright. Yes. <laughs> um, lastly, you also have an extended yoke. So you can now undersling the light if you want to, and you have a lot more versatility with this, and it also has an upgraded handle as well. Uh, so a lot of small bells and whistles that we upgraded to the new 120D Mark II. It's going to be retailing for about $100 more than the 120D Mark I. It's going to be close to a 1K tungsten equivalent in terms of brightness. We're really excited for it. It'll be out in September. How much is it going to be? About $745 for the kit. That's not bad. Thank you. <laughs> and how many are you going to come out with initially? Because I, I want to get one, but last time I ordered the 300, it took a little while. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I want to be first. Sorry. We're very, very sorry. We're going as fast as we can. Uh, of course, it's a good problem to have, but we're 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 going to try and go big for the 120 Mark II. It's already in way too high of demand. Um, we're going to do our best to get a lot out for the first batch. Awesome. So just briefly, what are, what's the main difference between the last light and this light? I think is it that this is just one unit? It's that it's all one power unit now, and that it's 30% brighter. Those are the two biggest commodities. That's awesome. So how's your show been? Busy. My voice is gone. If you would have come yesterday, it would have been even more gone, actually. I've had about nine packets of honey because my voice is just really, really gone. But it's been really fun. We're in the shade now, which is amazing. We were not in the shade last year. Last year, it was really hot. Yes. 
Um, but yeah, it's been a great show. It's been really fun. There's a cool new. There's a couple new things that came out. I heard from Panavision and Kinfinity and all that stuff. So, I haven't seen NAB. Or I haven't seen Cinegear at all. I'm mixing up my trade shows now. Uh, that's how tired I am. I mix them up too. Anything. Yeah, I haven't seen anything. Uh, we've been here because we have not had a dull moment. But it's been really cool. Yeah, this is a nice show. The weather has been a little bit cooler than last year too. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. It's a lot nicer. So what's what's how did you get involved with with Aperture? What's your background? Sure. So I've been I just had my one year anniversary with Aperture. When you met me, I was a wee lad. I was two weeks in. I didn't know anything about lighting. Um, my background was I used to shoot for Disney Imagineering. Shoot. Yeah. So I worked on some of the Star Wars Land portfolios and the Avatar Land projects. And I can't tell you anything about it, unfortunately. But it was really fun. Um, so you're a shooter. I'm a shooter. I'm a filmmaker, cinematographer, before anything else. So what do you use? What do you have? Do you use Aperture products? Always. <laughs> Why would I use anything besides Aperture? I used to have those little, uh, those little Amazon lights, and I was like, well, these are fine. And then I saw the F7, and I was like, what was I doing with my life? <laughs> yeah, they don't teach you about lighting in film school as much as they should be. So, so you went to film school? I went to film school at UCLA many, many years ago. Um, yeah, it's a great school. They teach you all about story and stuff like that. But lighting, it took me a while to learn lighting when I got to Aperture. It was a quick learning curve. It was a very fast learning curve. But I'm glad I'm here because I feel like I learned more about cinematography than I ever have before in the past year than like 20 years of film school would have taught me. That's awesome. Um, so what do you shoot on? What are your projects? What are your interests? Aperture, Aperture, Aperture right now. Uh, we are growing at a really quick at a really fast pace. Um, last year, it was just Ted and me. Before that, it was just Ted, working out of coffee shops and co-working spaces. Um, get that man some coffee. Um, we just expanded to, now we have five people on the team. Um, so most of my job is running all of our social media and partnerships. Um, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of work with all of our new releases, but it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun growth. And we've just been kind of riding this wave of growth, and it's been really fun. That's really awesome. Well, thanks for your time. I know I actually interrupted Neris packing up. Um, oh, it's fine. And, you and actually, let's just, we're going to end the interview, but then we're going to get a little shot of him packing. So thanks so much, you Neris. You don't see that, but okay, let's do it. All right, <laughs> let's do I'm it. Down. <laughs> 2018 for Tech Move, signing off. Cool. But we're going to keep recording. Go ahead, go for it, Neris. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's going to pack. Roll this? We have, we can have 4K, so we can just... You want to, want to come in? Let's Are get you sure? yeah. It's let's up to you. come it's on up in. To you. Come on in, and then we'll get him packing and we'll get B-roll. You want to get me packing? Yes, we're oh, gonna right. get Naris pack, right. packing. So this is the uh, the, the new 120D Mark II, and this is Naris packing up the booth. Okay, I think we're gonna sign off. Thanks so much. You're 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 a great. Oops, you're a great uh, sport. All right, uh, we are back. It's Rod and Keith uh, here on Tech Move in our uh, special edition of Cinegear 2018, and uh, we are coming down to the end. I think that's gonna do it as far as our uh, in-depth interviews and all the people you were able to. Uh, gather up and rustle up there keith mm -hmm. uh thank you very much for uh getting all those folks there yeah uh, let's let's do this let's get kind of like your parting words 
of Cinegear 2018 and you know what was your overall kind of thought of the the show and and what you saw and what moved you uh honestly not super exciting nothing was nothing was really super there were just weren't big camera announcements other than well they they just weren't any big camera announcements like last year like last year they did the they did the um C200 which was pretty cool right uh that's a that was revolutionary i wound up getting a couple of those so <laughs> that was good for me yeah um and uh but this year there wasn't like a big camera announcement um there wasn't really even a, a refinement announcement there wasn't even like a codec announcement like they did at NAB about a month before of the Apple uh, ProRes, uh, I mean Apple ProRes Raw, no right. Apple Raw, whatever it's called. Right. Anyway, it's <laughs> yeah one of those. Well, beca- be- because Raw. there's no updates to it, that's why you don't know it. That's the reason. Yeah, I think it's yeah it's ProRes Raw, and which actually I've used since then, and it's really cool. But um, and it's going to revolutionize everything. But other than that, it's actually a bigger announcement than I thought at the time. I think in the last episode I said it was just like, who cares? But actually, <laughs> now that I've used it. <laughs> but you actually like it now. I actually like it. I think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. But um, we can talk about that maybe in the future. But um, no, there wasn't. There wasn't. So I just had to kind of look around for stuff that interested me, even if it wasn't like revolutionary and really big news. And I think we found a, f- a few things that interested me. Um and but just overall, but but the still Cinegear just in general is still really fun for for me right. to attend. You know? Right, it's just because you get to be in this the studio lot, and and there's a lot of um, movie people there, and TV movie and TV people there, people that are in the industry, kind of up our alley, and so that was that was pretty cool. Right, um, all everyone of like mindedness and stuff. Yeah, like that. yeah. There's just a lot of fans, not just a mixture of of other broadcasting but really really filmmaking stuff and that's right. that that's really nice so i i still enjoy it it's just that you know maybe for the fans out there there's not super interesting things to talk about but but um but overall you know I'm still gonna go every year sure no <laughs> yeah. I, I, I of yeah. course because you know it's it's not always uh going to be a slow news cycle i mean there's you know something gonna be right around the corner or whatever so. yeah yeah so yeah oh, all that well you know hey it was still very interesting uh a- again to all the folks that we uh were able to to talk to thank you very much for for their times and keith thank you very mm-hmm. much for uh uh heading on out there and enduring the heat and the, oh yeah um, and the extreme sun yes and coming back in one piece so uh we we, we th- what what's the next show after this are we uh are we waiting anything after this yeah, the next big show that we're going to go to is IBC in Amsterdam. Ah, that we 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 uh we were there. Uh, Tech Move was represented uh, last year. Uh, yes, there. is that correct? Yes, and then this year we're going to try to actually get some some good video of things and talk to people. We're going to try to explore and see what's something that's kind of unique about the Amsterdam show about IBC there that we can try to capture. Um, so. So we'll see. I'm going to just study it a little bit more. Last time it was just more like a new thing, so I didn't, it, I didn't feel as home at home as the NABs or the Cinegear. So I think hopefully I'm, it has nothing to do with smoking weed or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, so, but 
<laughs> I don't know. You never know. There you never could be know. Some, you never some interesting know. Interesting camera technology. Right. I mean, if we start talking about rainbows and unicorns, then uh, <laughs> we know we've got a problem. So, well, fantastic. Okay, so yes. we'll we'll look forward to IBC. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, let's um. We have a little special uh, thing that we haven't done in a long time. And uh, before we went uh, to record this particular segment, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Keith uh, got a uh, frantic knock on the door from the local delivery man. Yep. And, and uh, dogs barking and so, dogs yeah. barking, yeah. everyone going crazy. The mm-hmm. uh, the security cameras lighting up like Christmas trees. Yep. And uh, Keith, I believe. <laughs> We're going to do a live unboxing because you're expecting something, and I'm not even aware of what it is you're expecting. Yes. So I'm going to, I'm taking my little. Um, oh, I heard the utility. switchblade yep, opening. Yeah, right I'm going to cut it. I'm going to get really close to Please the box be careful. so you can hear the cutting. So I don't, Will you be off. wearing a. Uh, uh, eye goggles and or a face shield as I you am, open up? I am not. I live dangerously on the edge, as you know, so here we go. Very I'm cut this good without luck. any protective. It's nice gear. knowing you. Okay, here we go. I'm cutting the first cut. Okay, oh. that's the first cut. I didn't cut myself, luckily. Good. It's a pretty dull blade. So where <laughs> is where is this delivery coming from, to your knowledge? Like from what company? Uh, for, no, just give me a city. Give me a city. Where where where's this being shipped from? New Jersey. Ah, very. That's ooh. what's in the package. Ah, I like packages from New Jersey. <laughs> okay. I that's giving me a little hint. Okay, I'm slicing. Slicing. I usually just do one one slice, but I want to make it dramatic. No, I like it. I it's, <laughs> it sounds like you're using a cheese grater to get to the <laughs> to the contents. It's fabulous. Opening up the receipt, making sure that it's what I ordered and it is. Okay. I'm taking off the uh, clear recyclable ear. Ah, uh, yes, the little air pillows for protection. I'm looking at the outside of the package. In big letters, it says Lumix G. Uh, it's black. Uh-oh. It's micro four-thirds. Uh-oh. HDMI is one unit of it. Uh-oh. You can hear it a little bit. Uh, uh, well, is that it in pieces and you're just, <laughs> shit and you're just rattling it about? Or what? What is this? I'm gonna read it right now. It's Go ahead. the Panasonic DC-GH5S. Oh, ta-da! <laughs> Very yes. nice. Yes, I I just decided to bite the bullet and get one. Why not? I mean, yeah. like I, I'm actually a little surprised it took you this long. I mean, it's been out for a little while and stuff like that now, and uh, people have given it a lot of thumbs ups and stuff like that. So, uh, Keith, what drove you to to make the decision now? You know what kind of drove me was when I was using my A7R3 and the recording timed out at 30 minutes and I didn't know it. I had to restart it like oh, five, no. five minutes later. <laughs> oh, no. And then and then when the battery ran out on my A7 uh, R2 and I didn't have a, re- a replacement battery and it made me mad. And also that I can record, I, I can record um, 10-bit um, 4K with this, 10-bit 4K, right. 422 color. And I'm actually just open the whole thing while I'm talking. Yep. And it looks 
amazingly similar to the uh, GH5 I have. <laughs> I, I, I from from what my expert research, I believe the only thing that's different is some sort of little red dot, like in the back of the camera. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a there's some red accents. Right. There's there's um there's the S in the front, which is red. Yes. The letter nice. S. Nice. There's the a little red kind of ring around the uh, the the mode. I don't even know what the knob is called, but it's the left knob on the very left side of the camera that chooses where you want to have bracketed or or multiple frames or timer shooting. Mm -hmm. um, there's a little red ring at the bottom of that, and then the record button is red, kind of a metallic red. Right. It's kind of like the the Zakudo type of red, and that's it. I mean, that's pretty much it. I can't tell any other differences. It's about the same weight. Um, it's uh, the sensor is a little bit larger if you open up the the the, the front mm -hmm. uh, the the cap. Right. It's actually you you could actually tell it's a little bit different. Yeah, it's a slight slightly bigger. Just oh. just a little bit. Yeah. That's that's probably pretty good then. That's actually good. That's actually one of the reasons I got it. This it's funny because it's a micro four thirds, but the sensor is bigger, but it still works with the lenses. You know, all the four thirds lenses. Right. Um. It's just um. It's actually almost it's one point. It's like a 1.7 crop factor. So it's almost like an APS-C camera, which is oh. crazy, crazy, huh? Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. So that part's good. And, and I just, supposedly the color science in is better than GH5, which I would be grateful for. The GH5 is pretty good, but it's still not as good as the Sonys and the Canons. Right. But I hear that this one is blows away the Sonys for color. And, and I, what I've seen looks pretty good. And, uh, just having that that nice codec. A lot of it's about the codec and the recording length. That's what I'm looking for. I, I you know, I did not hear about your travesty with the um, with the Sony cameras and the record limit. That is certainly something that I don't know how Panasonic keeps, you know, getting away with it and not having that limit. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of amazing how how they're able, you know, that that little feature is is so important. It's really important to me. It's the difference between a professional camera and a and a stills hybrid camera. You know, the in a way that this this these Lumixes, the GH five, and you know all the GH series, even the GH four, um, they they tick a lot of boxes when it comes to professionalism. Yeah, and the GH five series especially so because of the codec. The fact you can record internally 400 uh, megabits per second uh, with a in intra frame codec, right? And and that's really cool. Um, I mean, that's getting to professional levels. And then also, fact you can record more than 30 minutes. So, and the battery life's pretty good. I actually got a, a recently. I think it's in a package upstairs. I haven't opened it yet, but I got a, a, a battery bottom for this as well. Oh, the battery, oh, you did, huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So that adds another battery, so that doubles the battery life. And, and uh, but that also adds a little bit of weight to the camera as well. It does. It adds a little bit of girth and uh -huh. weight, and um, but it's not too much, and it's worth it. You know, if you're just doing like a wh what I'm seeing using this camera for mostly is just kind of sit it sit in a place, aim aim in a location, and record. Do, Not, do, do you think this will, is this going to kind of take place of your C200 or, um, or you're going to no. use in conjunction with or what? Um, well, I, I have to kind of test it out and see. I think there's a couple things that are 
lacking in it. One thing is it doesn't have in in body stabilization of the sensor. That's right. the difference, really. And that's if they had in body stabilization, I think it would be just a clear cut winner. Like nobody would buy the GH five. But right. um, but I think there's reasons for it. I think because the sensor is bigger and they didn't have stabilization mechanism for it. Right. Um, apparently, rumor is that this this actually um, is a Sony sensor. <laughs> Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, it's actually they buy it from Sony, which is crazy. But um, yeah, but um, yeah, the the it's not going to replace the C two hundred. I mean, you really can't. This this camera can't replace it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it. The this you know one of the reasons is the autofocus on the C two hundred is so good. Right. You know, you you don't have to be worried about focusing on faces and things like this one. The autofocusing is crappy or neg- or non-existent so <laughs> yeah so it's one it's one of those things where if you really want performance out of it, you just set it focus you know do the punch in to focus on whatever it is and then lock the focus off right um it does also fo- just from a focus point, point of view it still has that limitation where you can't be recording and punch in and, and look at the focus you know so you have to rely on the the built-in uh, peaking for focusing which isn't always that great especially with 4k and it can be slightly out of focus and you won't even know it Mm. So for that, you'd have to rely on external monitor and then you start getting, you know, you're bulking up the system mm-hmm. and, and it's not becoming a, a, a DSLR anymore. It's becoming like a big cinema thing, which might maybe just use the C200 instead. So, um, but I do see its use. I see the use as being much more reliable for those long recordings and much better battery life with still a small package. Um, I think that's so. the big thing about you know, Panasonic Lumix is just the battery life. They have got that down. I mean, ever since the GH1 and everything since that time, I mean, battery life has just been so spectacular, even with the knockoff batteries. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. The the battery life is is amazing. It's not quite as good. Like, the GH4's battery life is really, really good. Mm -hmm. Um, This one, I, I think it's maybe half. Oh, okay. That's what it, yeah. Like I used to that's be still able to good get, though. I mean, probably still, probably better than your Sony's. Oh yeah, it's it's like two hours easy with a full battery on the on the Lumexes, yeah. on the GH5s, and uh, and then with this battery grip, you know, I'll probably get like two to like three to four hours, which is probably long enough. Right. So right. On, I have these great little um, Atomos Power Station battery adapters that I can always use on my Sony's or any other cameras if I really need that. But then it adds this complexity. Yeah. You get to attach this battery thing and this and that. It's right. just not as simple. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm just kind of looking for efficiency. And the images I've seen out of this, too, look pretty good. They look they look like they can match pretty well the C200. Ha, ha, so. have, you, have you seen anything uh, about low-light capability versus the GH5 uh, and the 5S? Uh, any differences yeah. in that? Yeah. The, the, the GH5S is definitely like two stops more sensitivity, which is pretty huge. So the, so you could record like 6,400 on, on the GH five S and it would be the same as looking at the 1600 on the GH five. Wow. Really? Yeah. With with very little noise, if any at all at that point, it's, it's acceptable noise. 6,400 or even 10,000 is apparently acceptable. Wow. On a a five S. Wow. That's, yeah, that's pretty major. Yeah. From what I've heard from some of the reviews, it actually rivals, the, you know, the Sony's, um, wow. like the a seven, maybe, maybe not, maybe like the a seven S two, which is kind of amazing. It, it rivals it at lower ISOs. When you start getting to the super high ISOs, like 
twenty thousand and stuff. I think it, I think the Sony's pull away. Right. Um, but really, I've I've done shooting at that, and it's not it's not that sharp. It's kind of muddy. You know, it, it you looks mean like on the Sony's on, on the, the Sony's, Sony's yeah on the Sony's yeah. Okay. So it's kind of like you could run neat video on the GH5 and probably get something that looks similar because any kind of noise. I think what happens with the Sony's they actually have noise reduction at those higher ISOs. And they're just running it through noise reduction, and and so things are are not as noisy, but they're also not as sharp. So um, yeah, so we'll see. But I'm gonna I'm gonna take this. I'm going going a trip soon to Maui right. in about a week, and I'm gonna take this. Yep. Uh, I'm gonna take some lenses. I'm gonna order another Lumix lens, the 12 to 60, which apparently got really good reviews. Is that 2.8 as well? It's 2.8 at the low end, and it's four or something on the high end. Oh, okay. So it's 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 not a a, a fixed aperture. It's not a fixed aperture. It's okay. more like a walk around lens, but mm-hmm. it's apparently just as sharp as as any of them. Yeah. So so that part's good. It's not a, it's not cheap. It's like how, a thousand bucks. How so. how how different is that from like our kit lens? I know our kit lens was like a three point five to five point six at least something like that. Yeah, the kit lens I think is probably a little lower quality. Yeah. In images. Mm-hmm. Um. Not not terrible, just not quite a superlative. I think this one rivals the like the fixed two point eight lenses that they sell, like the twelve oh, cool. to yeah twelve to thirty five. And the mm-hmm. I was thinking about getting the thirty two hundred, mm-hmm. um, but I just decided on the sixty, right? And because I have the super long lens, um, I have the the Lumix. Um, I think it's two hundred to four hundred or something. It's it's super long. Or one hundred one, yeah. I think it's one hundred four hundred something. It's really, it's really a big heavy lens, but it's real. It can get super close. It's amazing. I'd actually use that. On, I'd use that on my GH five though before I'd use it on this because since this is a bigger sensor, it's not going to be as telephoto. So right. yeah. Right. So I'm gonna, if I was to use that lens, I probably wouldn't use it on this one. So, uh, but I might just to see what it looks like. Terrific. Yeah. So hey, that's congratulations, it. I have, GH five S. Yes. Uh and a a uh, very surprising delayed purchase from Keith Moreau uh in in Tech Move world. Um yeah. very surprising, but I'm I'm glad that you know what's kind of neat Keith is you know you've actually it it seems well I guess that's not true. You you've you've never owned the GH2 or 3. Is that correct? I think you went from one yes. kind of spaced out a little bit and then uh-huh. got got a four and then five and now five s so yeah that's pretty good yeah there wasn't the two and the threes were not compelling to me i they just weren't they weren't right. a big enough upgrade i i i, I think fr- if you were to go from a one to a three that was fairly decent but definitely the four was kind of game changing and stuff yeah. like that so yeah that, the 4k was the breakout yeah that was that was the, that was the game changer cool Cool. So anyway, yeah. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Uh y- you know, before we go, and we are about to wrap up here, ladies and gentlemen, but uh we wanna uh because it's kind of taken us a little long to kind of get this episode out, uh, because of just various things that are going on, we want to touch a little bit on some news uh that has come out and uh like to get Keith's opinion on the new MacBook Pros that were just uh, announced. Now, you know what's fantastic is that uh, I'm sure I've mentioned somewhere that I did pick up a MacBook Pro, and probably not but 20 minutes later, they introduced (laughs) the new 
MacBook Pros. Yes. So uh, in typical Rod Louis fashion, I am a day too late to the party. Mm-hmm. But you know what? At this, uh, what seems to be MSRP of twenty eight hundred bucks for this thing. Maybe I would have missed the party altogether anyway. Keith, <laughs> let me have your uh, opinion on a couple of these things. Well, I think the big claim to fame for these new Mac Pros that are coming out in the summer of 2018 um, is they're using a brand new processor. They're using the i9 versus the i7. Right. So that's, I guess they just skipped the i8. <laughs> right. <laughs> they just jumped over the i8. Uh, well, is, is that the way it was? Like i5, i7. Maybe no, they I just nine. go by odd yeah, numbers. Yeah, they, they. I think they like the every <laughs> other number for some reason. I guess Intel has uh, has wants it for themselves or something. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah, so they're going to the i9, and I think the i9 is just faster. It's just faster, and it offers um, more cores. Well, actually, I'm not really positive if it offers more cores. I see that it offers up to six cores. So, um, but I don't know that the, yeah, I think the previous, the 2017 Mac Pros, which is what we have. Right. Because uh, you got one and I got one maybe a little bit faster than yours, but they're both. Oh, I'm using, sure yours is much faster than mine. <laughs> but they're using the four cores. Um, so this one just, you know, adds more cores. So that's potentially doubling, not doubling, but a third again, a faster just on cores alone. And then probably add some other stuff that makes it even faster. Goes It goes up to 4.8 gigahertz on the 15-inch model. Mm-hmm. So that's up from 4.1 on the on the uh, 2017. I think I have the 4.1. So if you compared the one that I got, which wasn't that old, much older than yours, or much much pretty recent, I think I got in November of last year, or maybe, yeah, around November, um, there's a benchmark on that. I'll just read you the benchmark. Uh, Geek Geekbench. Yes. Um, so for my for mine, it's fifteen five forty eight is the benchmark. Fifteen thousand five hundred forty eight for the newest fast one, fastest one, which is probably pretty expensive. It's twenty two four thirty nine. So it's like, yeah, it's like a third faster. So I'm uh I'm looking at mine 50%. right now. I'm looking at mine right now, and I have the 2.9 gigahertz uh, i7. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, I, I don't. don't s- I don't uh, see a list of geek benches for yours. I don't probably. I, I'm probably not worthy to have. Uh, yeah, I think benches. your your geek bench score is like five. So. That's probably. That's probably. It. <laughs> no, that's, no that's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's that's probably exactly it. But a, still a very fine machine. A very fine machine. Oh well. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, mine. Mine's great. I. I. I, I mean, for <laughs> watching Three Stooges uh, <laughs> reruns is f- absolutely fabulous. Perfect for that. <laughs> no, it's absolutely perfect, perfect for, for black that. and white reruns. Perfect for <laughs> black and white 480i <laughs> videos is perfect. Interlaced. I, I, I haven't. Less. I haven't. I haven't missed a beat. Watching my SVCD discs are. <laughs> Tremendous on this thing. They look great. <laughs> Don't be Actually, jealous, ladies and gentlemen. Don't be jealous. So please. along those lines, you were talking about the eGPUs that came out. The who? Big, oh yeah, that's right. The yeah. Big, there's a lot of big news about yep. that. Yep. So exactly. Let me you uh, talk. You know talk I want to. Yeah. Here, well, uh, Keith, explain what an eGPU is. 
an eGPU stands for external GPU. And yep. it's basically instead of plugging a big PCI card into your into your uh, PC <laughs> slots, the, yep. um, you buy, buy a box that has the PCI card electronics in it, and then you plug it using some type of really fast interface. In this case, I think it's Thunderbolt three, yep. and you plug that into your computer, Mac, and then the Mac. The thing that th about Thunderbolt that's really cool is that it's basically a PCI bus. That's why it's so fast. It's kind of like taking all the little pins that are that were spread across. I don't know how many pins there are in a PCI bus, but it's a lot. It's like dozens of pins, and it's taking all those and it's kind of multiplexing them all together to fit through like a serial cable, like a USB cable. Mm -hmm. So it's all kind of all in a row, but it's so super fast that it's still kind of retaining that speed of being this bus that was in your computer, your gigantic computer before. Sending that all to this eGPU, it's acting like it's on a PCI bus, and it's processing and sending that data back whatever it's done back to your back to your thunderbolt 3 computer and so you can you can decide if you don't really need all that processing power you can leave the eGPU off leave it at home but if you want to take that maybe on a remote call or if if your macbook pro or even an imac is the only computer that you have um you can and you don't have any slots right you can't in this world now of Mac, <laughs> before the new Mac Pro gets released, there's no slots anymore. Right, which yeah. uh, which I love spending money on these stupid hubs that I have to have, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. It, it's all dangling off the side, and it's just, oh, yeah. it's just terrible. Everything is uh, Thunderbolt 3 slash uh, USB 3. Yep. Um, and and in, if you want stuff, you just plug a dongle in. In right. this case, the eGPU is like a dongle. It's like an accelerator dongle mm -hmm. for your applications that need GPUs. Like Resolve might use it. Premiere Pro might use it. Maybe even, possibly even uh, uh, Final Cut might use it. And there's other, other applications that use these things. So, yeah. So it's just a way of kind of, it's kind of replacing, you know, all the slots that you used to need in a big, gigantic machine that you didn't always use. Well, so. you know, and and I brought up the question to you because uh, on uh, on the web there have been a lot of reports of this new eGPU that's been released mm -hmm. uh, from a company called Blackmagic. Yeah, Blackmagic Design. Mm -hmm. Yep, and uh, it, 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 that's not the, our same friends who who do the cameras, is it? I'm pretty sure that it is. Really? Okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Well, I'm. Yeah, I'm almost positive that it is. Let me just check. Well, why don't why don't yes you it is it, it is. is wow mm -hmm. yeah. so it's it's so, our friends that do the pocket cinema camera that won't be out until like two decades from now and, and <laughs> right. other well, other unannounced products well well it seems <laughs> as if that's the reason is because they're pouring all their attention to this eGPU <laughs> that they just put out yeah and uh, it retails for about six ninety nine uh, through the Apple Store and this has been getting a lot of play. Yeah. Uh you know, I've been looking at it only only because it's just a very interesting thing, you know. I love I love these kind of like centralized hub type of things. And this is definitely one of those where, you know, this has oh, what, what what is that? It has four USB 3 ports, it has two Thunderbolt 3 ports. Um it has, you know, of course it has the Radeon Pro 580 graphics processor with eight, eight gigs of memory inside. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a, you know, HDMI port, you know, and and also it charges at 85 watts. So, you know, kind, kind of an interesting thing. 
Um, not exactly portable. Definitely has to sit on the uh, on the desk somewhere, uh, especially once you start, you know, plugging things into it. Because mm-hmm. then it's going to be, you know, like your like the old, you know, Mac Pro trash can thing, where you're mm-hmm. going to have a bunch of junk hanging off the back of it or the front yep. of it, whichever way you put it. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, it's kind of an interesting little thing. It se- seem seems like a neat thing, but at seven hundred bucks. You know, I'm not sure about that. Well, considering that it's a it's a hub, and you know what you might pay a couple hundred for. Um, you know, you might to get a Thunderbolt to USB hub to yep. HDMI hub. You know, they they cost a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. So you're only really paying like four hundred dollars for the eGPU part of it. So it's not. I don't see it's. I, I don't think it as it's a bad deal. I think it's actually a pretty good deal. Is I, These, I guess if you're look because you know before when you're using your Mac Pro, you know your tower. How much yeah. were you remember those uh, uh, GPUs you would buy those? Yeah, uh, uh, all those Radeons and stuff like that. How much yeah. would you spend on those? Those were like a thousand dollars sometimes. So those so then were, maybe this is kind of. I mean, is is the Radeon Pro five eighty a pretty good? I pretty I good? don't know. I'd have to research it. Yeah, um, but. I assume that it's pretty good. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to look into it. Like yeah. I don't know how it compares to what's inside this this iMac Pro that I have. Right. So, um yeah. but we can maybe next time we can look into it and get some feedback and I'll look sure. at, I'll get some videos and stuff on it. I I personally am not going to get it right away. Um I'd have to wait until it accelerates something that I really care about. And um you know, I Final Cut Pro is so quick. Uh, I don't know if it can even use this, and I don't really use Resolve, so um, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty good play though because they you know they're selling DaVinci Resolve they're basically giving away DaVinci Resolve. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if the the free version can use this or not. Probably, but um, it's still a really commercially a really smart move because they're making this hardware so that they their software that which, which is free can run faster. Yeah, and and so it's it's a really good model. So, um, yeah, it looks like it can accelerate stuff up to seven times using DaVinci Resolve, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I think so, it, I think just a very interesting, you know, piece of equipment that, you know, uh, uh, stylish enough, does a lot of stuff. You can plug a lot of things to it, use it as your central hub. Kind of neat. Yeah. Kind of neat. neat. Kind of neat. I, yeah. I just wouldn't. I just wouldn't pay for it. That's all. So yeah, maybe if you were using Resolve a lot and you really, yeah. you would probably notice the speed difference. But if you don't yeah. use that stuff, then probably not. Yeah, true. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Keith, that's gonna do it for this episode. Yeah. Uh, of of Tech Move. Thank you so much for uh, for everything. Uh, let's remind the good folks about how they can find us. Of course, ladies and gentlemen, you can find us on the web at techmovepodcast.com. And we'd love for you to uh, to support us uh, through our Amazon uh, link. Uh, Keith, do you know the, the way that thing works? Um, to support us through Amazon, just go to techmovepodcast.com uh, podcast slash. slash Amazon. Yeah, and we, 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 we get a couple shillings from, uh, from that when you uh, purchase something that you would ordinarily purchase if you uh, use our little uh, link there. That'd be great. Uh, Mm -hmm. Plus, we also would love it if you would subscribe to us on iTunes. Just search for Tech Move. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we have a Facebook uh, presence, Tech Move Podcast, Twitter, at Tech 
Move podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and then uh, how's the Patreon uh, thing coming along, Keith? Uh, it's coming along great. Just great. go there to um, our Patreon site, and I think the link is right right there. Um, I don't have it in front of me. I so. do. It's <laughs> patreon.com slash techmovepodcast is how you f- uh, support us and find us through there, and uh, that helps the uh, podcast uh, continue to be uh, up on the internet and available to you for uh, download and playback whenever you want to operate heavy machinery. So um, (laughs) uh, anyway, Keith, thank you very much again. You're you're welcome, Ron. Uh, On behalf of all of us here at our downtown San Francisco luxurious studios... (laughs) I am Rod Louie along with Keith Moreau, and we thank you so much for joining us here on Tech Move, and we will see you on our next episode coming within the next 10 years. Keith, thank you very much, huh? Okay, thank you, Rod. Okay, we'll see you later, everyone. Mm-hmm.